Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo pays another visit to Mr. Billy Wilder. First, we will need the key. I don't seem to have it. I wonder if Baxter left it under the mat like he said he would. Ah, here it is. Now we step into the world of romantic comedy evolved, where the delightful but fizzled out notions of the meet-cute and the romance that blossoms almost instantly have been boiled down to the harsh, realistic, and darkly comic that would give a world a glimpse into itself with the realities of heart, heartbreak, and the things in between the whole mess. These things and oh so much more await you as you step inside 1960's The Apartment. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Number one, a very warm, very wonderful story about a boy, a girl, and a very special kind of problem. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kublik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Ingredient number two, a brilliant cast. Jack Lemon in a delightful role which gives full reign to Jack's amazing versatility. Shirley MacLaine whose glowing warmth lights up the screen like a Christmas tree. Fred McMurray. This is a Fred McMurray you've never seen before. You know, you see a girl a couple of times a week just for laughs, and right away, they think you're going to divorce your wife. <laughs> I ask you, is that, is that fair? No, sir, it's very unfair, especially to your wife. Yeah. Ingredient number three, Billy Wilder. There's nothing quite like that Billy Wilder, some like it hot kind of laughter. <laughs> Are we dressing for dinner? You know, just come as you are. So you're pretty good with that racket. You should see my backhand. Where'd you see me serve the meatballs? <laughs> Mildred, he's at it again.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Coming off of the major success of the more traditional comedy Some Like It Hot, Wilder and his new collaborator, IAL Diamond, (laughs) set up shifting gears in a dramatic way which would lead to one of cinema's finest blends of smart comedy and sincere drama. The picture's impact would not only affect the legacies of its stars, but it would go on to transform an entire genre, one that still manages to flourish to this day. But how did the story of this schmuck Baxter and his humble abode happen to happen to come about? And how do we view the film's stab at realism of human life when intertwined romantically from a modern lens? Well, we shall get to the bottom of the matter with a return guest who tackles all the major hot-button ballyhoo topics. When we last saw him, he was chasing away angry old dads from his lawn after his fantastic wit and deep observation of the searchers. And tonight, we will give him another wind through the world of Wilder. Please welcome back Adam Jewell. What's up? Woo! I am like... (laughs) I feel like... um, I would say, if anything, I'm like Thanos. (laughs) Wait, you're inevitable? (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) It's just, it does seem like every time that I want to tackle a major, major issue, I'm like, Adam knows how to do this today. <laughs> Not me. I can't. Um, um, I mean, the, I will say just as a precursor or as a preface, there, yeah, there are major, there are major issues with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you are a fan of the well, movie. Well, we can, yeah, we can get into that. Yeah. You know. Later. That's what they call a tease in the business. Boys yes, and girls. exactly. The, the the patented jewel tease, if you will. <laughs> um, not not to be confused with jewel tea available exclusively from Lipton. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, you um, yes, your searchers episode was very well received. One of our listeners, Stacy, was very very happy with the fact that you were calling to attention these major issues within the film, and um, I, I I was actually happy that we took the four hours we did to talk about it because it's 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 such a loaded conversation that it's just like we need all the time we can get <laughs> so um but you well um, thank you stacy <laughs> yep it's and and on top of that um your wh- when we went back to double indemnity i started really opening up my lenses to uh barbara stanwick as a result so that was like a good like catalyst for me to kick back into barbara stanwick I've since seen mm-hmm. Night Nurse with her in the pre-code realm, as well as Babyface. Mm-hmm. And let me just say, if anybody out there still hasn't seen Night Nurse, why the fuck haven't you seen Night Nurse? It's it's insane. It's 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 about women who work as night nurses, and then they have to save children from Clark Gable, who plays Nick, the chauffeur, who is the worst monster ever. <laughs> Um, although well, I don't know, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody we're going to discuss today is going to fall into the realm of Nick, the chauffeur monstrosity. Like, I mean, I'm talking like Nick, the chauffeur is a straight up monster who starves children so that he can get an inheritance. It's insane. Um, the power of pre-code people. Um, but you tackled a hard thing like the searchers and your reward is we're giving you the apartment. <laughs> um, and, uh, this is a film that has a, a, a huge amount of popularity around it. Um, and it's one that I yes. wasn't paying attention to as much when I was growing up. Um, within the last six months, I have watched this movie three to four times and I cannot, uh, I can't get over it each time I watch it. Like it's, it, it, it's pretty astounding how, what, how they were able to get away with this stuff in 1960. 
Um, but I will ask you for posterity. What is your experience with the apartment? Mm. I remember I didn't first see it until I was older. Mm. Were you talking like so, young adult or like early thirties? Oh or? no, like in college. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't see it until I was in college. So I would say that there's complicatedness to the apartment, but not in the same sense as like the searchers. This has some definite glaring issues that mm-hmm. will obviously get tackled. And get into, and I think that also needs to be addressed. But there's also things that definitely stand out in a more positive way. But it's also one of those areas. Um, it's a load. It's a loaded, um, or it's a, um, it's a double-edged sword, if you will. Like it's 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 got some some attributes and detriments, and it's in its favor. Um, it's definitely like it's funny for a movie that was transcendent for its time. It's also very much a product of its time. So it's like oh, it's, it, it falls into both categories. Um, I I actually wanted to know from the grand scheme of Wilder, it, would you call this your your top Wilder, or do you have like a different ranking for it? Oh, let me hang on. <laughs> there are some that I'm just not remembering from his filmography, even though I know that's it's the like, front, what? it's the front page, isn't it? You like the front page. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I still probably fall in line with the uh, double indemnity as mm-hmm. number one. Um, so, I don't know. I don't really have a definitive Wilder ranking system. But if I had to say, I mean, your top five are somewhere double indemnity. And then after that, in no particular order, like the apartment. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. uh, something like it hot, mm, seven year itch. Yeah, well, that, that is a good one. In some way, shape, I mean, in some way, shape, or form. But I mean, all of them, especially if you go back and watch Some Like It Hot, a little problematic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's a film that will definitely be discussed on this show. Um, it's a film that I like, but yeah, it, it is uh, aged very differently than. Then I I don't I don't know how many people would have expected it to age um, the way it has, but um, the uh, the if I was doing a Wilder ranking, you you listed off a good bunch of them, but I would throw in there the Lost Weekend, which is a film that I think still holds mm-hmm. up incredibly well. Um, the very it, it's it's outdated in the respect of how it technically treats alcoholism, but it's still pretty spot on considering yeah. what you have to work with within the knowledge base and Ray Milan's just fucking killer in it, man. Um, but the, the reason I ask is because like, this is, this seems to be at the top of many people's wilder list. Like this, this is the one that they go to, like this is their go-to pick or some like it hot. Um, and or yeah. double indemnity. Like those are the big three, I guess sunset. Well, there's a lot, but apartment I keep seeing on a lot of lists. Um, and it's mm-hmm. not hard to see why. Even with the things we'll discuss in the film today, there is something super entrancing about the story combined with the cinematography, combined with the way this film uh, executes itself, that you can't look away from the screen. <laughs> um, you are True. You are very much latched in from 
almost moment one, I want to say. I have a I have a argument to make that the very opening image is uh, a little tainted by the fact that I've seen this trope a couple of times before, but it doesn't mean I don't like it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the the one thing is, since since we've talked about Wilder before, what's interesting is that Wilder had two main uh, collaborators um, within the writing realm of his life, apart from yeah. who he ended up working with in regards to uh, Double Indemnity. They were Charles Brackett and I.A.L. Diamond. Um, and Diamond is a guy that I was... I didn't look too much into him prior to all of this, but obviously one of the most consistent collaborators with uh, Wilder over the course of the latter half of his career. Um, is a, There's not much bio on him that I was able to grab apart from the basics of like birth and early life, but he's born in Ukeni, mm-hmm. Iasi, Bessarabia, Romania. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I'm fucking sorry if I did. Um, but it's now part of Moldova. Um, and he was born under the name Itzek Domenici. And uh, at eight, at the age of nine, he and his family are emigrated over to America and they start living in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Um, he goes to the mm-hmm. boys' school and he excels in mathematics. And the initials IAL he would quip later on came from a prize that he received for the interscholastic algebra league. So much like, uh, Adam and I's mutual love of the Simpsons and or Futurama, we're dealing with mathematics, smarts and comedy, (laughs) 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 which as we both know, leads to all the best quotes. (laughs) Yeah. Just, Side tangent, for oh, and, <laughs> and and a lot going over my head because I'm not good at math. Oh yeah, no, like th- th- side side tangent for a quick second. I've been going back through The Simpsons. You realize like how many jokes are stuffed into one episode where you're just like, this is why they're hiring everybody out of fucking Harvard. <laughs> they're just packing yeah, it all of, in. Bunch of nerds. Yes. Bunch of nerds writing jokes. Oh, exactly. With Al Jean at the lead. <laughs> um, and so he. He he had, oh, this is another one. This this will double down on IAL Diamond, aka Lord King Nerd, for this evening. Uh, he participated in the Mathematics Olympiads in 1936 to 1937. The Mathematic Olympiads. Adam, were we just not I mean, aware? <laughs> no, I think people were aware. We were just too dumb. To compete, they're just like, don't waste your time on them. They're not good at math. They're like, hide the flyer, hide the flyer. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, no, just, just don't. What you guys doing there with numbers? Nothing. <laughs> hey, I know how to add. You know. I know how to subtract. I know. I know how to divide. But if you ask me yeah. the square root of something or other, I'm going to tell you like, um, exactly. You know what, though? He might have gotten tired with mathematics, Adam, because then he moves into journalism. Uh, When he starts uh, studying at Columbia University, uh, he becomes the editor of the Columbia humor magazine, The Jester of Columbia, and would write four whole productions of the Varsity Review school productions all on his own. This guy was a a math whiz, and he was an ambitious go-getter behind the typewriter. Um, And it... It compelled him so much that he decided, you know what? I don't need to go for engineering. What I want to do is Hollywood. 
And so he booked it into a short-term contract with Paramount Pictures where he would proceed to write films going mostly uncredited until finally, when moving on over to Universal Pictures, he gets his first credited screenplay uh, for the film Murder in the Blue Room. Uh, And then his Mm -hmm. big break would come from Warner Brothers with 1946's Never Say Goodbye. From there, he moves into Fox, and from 1951 to 55, he works then until he becomes an independent uh, freelance, working for different studios at the whim, not under contract. At the time that he would have broken away into the independent realm, uh, the studio system was was already on the verge of its own collapse to the point where most most actors, directors, writers, and producers were not bound by the studio anymore unless they chose to. Um, so at this point, IAL Diamond is following the course that most screenwriters, like not many screenwriters are still under contract today to a specific studio, I want to say, unless they have like an exclusive deal on a property or something. Unless they haven't, unless they haven't well, I mean, a lot of writers still do they i mean they still have that a lot in within the studio system they now call them overall deals mm. so if you look at someone like um jj abrams they you know he signed with he signed an overall deal with warner brothers mm-hmm. sometime last year i can't and i believe it was for around 250 million somewhere between 250 and 500 million dollars um, That's you have like Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, they signed overalls with Netflix. Mm-hmm. So the studio system of locking creators into con into things, it's not long gone. It's just now that they are paying them and paying them well. <laughs> yeah. They're paying them. They're paying for that exclusive exclusivity. Whereas in the studio system era, they were having them on, yeah. a, on a consistent payroll. And we discussed on one of our last, um, more recent episodes on um, with Olivia de Havilland basically breaking the seven-year contract spell that Hollywood yeah. had under itself through up until the mid-40s. And yeah. really, like, I mean, the most consistent that I see, like, deals being developed to usually come out of the Disney camp with whether it's, you know, like, people like Taika Waititi making deals with them to do something like Star Wars or Johnson or whatever, but... But they're not staying solely exclusive. But the, the Abrams deal, um, that ended up being a big deal because of like him jumping ship from uh, after the Star Wars, uh, after the Star Wars of it all. Um, I yeah. know there's other issues behind that, but but the bottom line is is that yeah. So Diamond is falling in line with what the what the future would be, um, and he finds himself at that point into the life of one Billy Wilder. Uh, and he begins working with uh, him with the film Love in the Afternoon, and then they start moving into Some Like It Hot, which is, as stated before, a film that is very beloved, but also carries with it a lot of baggage of the era, um, not the least of which how it approaches comedy. Um, I'd argue it's still very much a watchable film, but you not like not too dissimilarly from the films Adam and I have discussed, you should be going in with context um, before you sit down to enjoy it. Um, but uh, at any rate, this is when we fall our fall into the apartment. Now, the apartment comes after the success of Some Like It Hot, which arguably is more of a traditional comedy of its time. Um, yep. And Wilder kind of could have done anything he wanted to do, but he was stuck on an idea that he had had as far back 
as seeing the movie Brief Encounter. Uh, Noel Coward film directed by David Lean, um, which involved a, an affair between two people who have to meet up at a separate place and uh, a, a somebody's apartment. And Wilder got the notion of like, what if we did a story about the guy who rented out the apartment to the people in Brief Encounter? <laughs> uh and which it's already like i love that wilder in learning more about this that wilder was already taking an approach into like you know let's explore the side characters in some of these melodramas <laughs> like like the people that you don't tend to think about beyond their one moment on screen <laughs> uh and as a result you get this you get this particular film which is rich in detail <laughs> Very true. There, but that, but this isn't the only inspiration point for it. There are two other ones, but this, the long story short of it was like Wilder was wanting to make this as far back as the early forties, and the movie we're talking about today deals with infidelity to say the absolute least, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, infidelity under the production code at this time was stricter than anything the sanctity of marriage was an absolute no 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 don't touch it um you can you could not insult the institution of marriage at that point so the fact that you would even try to make a movie about a guy who facilitates affairs from his apartment would have been it, it, he wilder would have had the door literally slammed in his face but credit to him he kept the inspiration in his back pocket for the time being um as the world of film started to open up content wise and the production code literally starts crumbling it's funny like the year of the apartment is very much the year that the code breaks apart almost uh, pretty much uh ir- ir- unrepairably like well because they filmed they filmed it in what 59 and then it was released in 60 Yes, um, the uh, the initial release date is June thirtieth, nineteen sixty. So the, if if not late fifty nine, early sixty, and yeah. the, this is the same year. Like not to bring it back to the origin point of this series, but this is also the same year that Alfred Hitchcock breaks the ground he does with Psycho. You also yes. have Michael Powell breaking the ground he does with Peeping Tom across the pond. Now that doesn't have the same impact, but it's still the dams being broken, like the water's flooding. Everything's, uh, everything's on the table now. And what's, what's interesting about it is that each of those films that I've discussed, apart from maybe peeping Tom, uh, the apartment and psycho for the, for the elements that they are looking to expand upon, they are still relatively pulled back compared to what you get today. Like, Mm -hmm. As with there's no real blood in Psycho, like no stabbing in Psycho that you actually see. You see an implied image in your head. There's no sex in the apartment. You don't see the sex in the apartment. Um, But it's very much you're aware that sex is going on in the apartment. (laughs) Um, It's it's very much like put over your head. Um, So Mm -hmm. another two things kind of happen within this whole experience. Um, in interviews with Wilder, um, he and Diamond looked into the recent happenings involving a certain high-powered agent named Jennings Lang, um, who was carrying on an affair with the actress Joan Bennett. Um, Joan Bennett, um, pre-code era star, also managed to kind of keep herself afloat throughout Golden Age Hollywood, 
but she was also married to power producer Walter Ranger. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Ranger found out about this, and the apartment was as uh, the 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 if the affair that they had was as such that they were using the apartment of a low-level employee working for Lang uh, in order to carry on their affair. And when Walter Wanger found out about this, uh, it resulted in Wanger shooting Lang in the left thigh over this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so very much uh, a, a, a noirish type of ending to this particular story. Um, it's interesting to think about that story inspiring this movie and Wilder looking at it and going like, well, say, what if we took away the gun? (laughs) 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 And then what if pills? Um, and pills play an important part in this because in another speculation, uh, within the inspiration, it's not speculation, it's fact, is Diamond had experience involving one of his friends who returned to his home after breaking up with his girlfriend and then finding out that the girlfriend that he had just broken up with committed suicide um there's not just uh hey. romantic there's not romantic subplots um j- uh primarily dominating the picture it's all this movie deals with suicide um and i would argue it, it's it's the first film to really do so <laughs> um it you know in a way that like it's treated seriously and it's not like alluded to off screen yeah. or whatever. Like it, it, you're seeing it on its face. Um, but yes, this um, there's, there's encounters diamond had with people in his own life combined with the story of Walter foreign correspondent Wanger shooting Jennings. I don't know what he did Lang <laughs> uh, in the thigh over, over this affair with Joan Bennett uh, that all culminate together to go on like, you know what? Tired of pussyfooting around this. We're making the apartment, guys. <laughs> no, no, no. Sherlock office, get the fuck out of my way. We're making the apartment. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, of course, the apartment, um, the Wilder was known to really work to have the actors adhere to his script verbatim, uh, an example of this can be found within James Cagney uh, doing yep. one of his most famous monologues in one, two, three and trying to get it down verbatim. And then he said, if you can't get this in one take, you're finished. <laughs> and even when he got it in one take, he still said he was done. And that's when he packed up and went back to his farm. Um, and, uh, but he did allow his lead actor to improvise in two scenes, um, which we will talk about as we go along. But we all know who the lead actor is of the day. We won't beat around the bush here. Um, just as a few weeks ago when we debuted Walter Matthau, um, uh, we we can't talk about you. You can't think of Walter Matthau without thinking Jack Lemon, And Jack Lemon True. is a goddamn legend. <laughs> <laughs> I I love Lemon. Um I will tell you right now this is not my favorite performance he's given. <laughs> but it's it's objectively among his best, not even a question. Um Yeah. Did were you like me where your first experience with Lemon would have probably been either the odd couple or Glenn Gary Glenn Ross? <laughs> nope. First experience with Jack Lemon was grumpy old men. I think ah. get- I didn't see Odd Couple and Glenn Gary or Glenn Gary Glenn Ross until I was much older. I think around high school or so. Okay. But I remember seeing Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men. 
uh, I don't know, like somewhere between like the age of seven and ten. Okay, Some, that makes that something to that something to that age range, and I think in just seeing them kind of ping pong back and forth with which I could only guess was a lot of a combination of their longstanding chemistry and Mm -hmm. improvisation. Yes. Um, These are two that were both friends on screen and off screen. Now, obviously Matho is not present with us today because I wasn't in this fucking movie. Um, But, uh, but the, the team up between them, like grumpy old men, which by the way is also the incredible story about how Anne Margaret never fucking ages. Um, but, uh, the very true, I, the, the amount of, um, the amount, the amount of Canon that you have with lemon, like lemon kind of one in this film, he inspires a certain type of performance that you see in romantic comedies down the line. Um, but, he also like he was a, he was one of those dramatic actors who knew how to do comedy and his son told him like it's hard to do comedy it's easy to do drama if you are able to do drama and mm-hmm. comedy together it is the hardest thing you'll ever do um and just quick sidebar sure um jack lemon and walter Matthau were so tight that they died nearly a year apart yep <laughs> Walter died in July 1st of 2000 and Jack mm-hmm. Lemon died June 27th of 2001. Yep. Walter said, if I'm going, I'm taking you with me. <laughs> Dragging him slowly to the grave. <laughs> um, now, uh, Lemon, born in Massachusetts, uh, he <laughs> uh, attended uh, the Rivers Country Day School and the Phillips Andover <laughs> Academy. Uh, and he was pursuing uh, track sports um, to great success. Went to mm. Harvard College in the class of 1947, where he lived in Elliot House. Elliot House! <laughs> um, and uh, at Harvard, he was the president of the Hasty Pudding Club, which, let's take a minute for a second, that's a social club. It doesn't seem it has to much do much with pudding, <laughs> apart from being named for Hasty Pudding. And he was the vice president of the Dramatic and Delphic Clubs. Um, uh, he was, it has been noted that he was not necessarily an exceptional student, <laughs> um, but he did, uh, he did excel outside of school within the military, uh, served from 43 to 50, 46, uh, serving briefly as an ensign on the aircraft carrier USS Lake Champlain during World War II before returning to Harvard. Uh, and after graduation with a degree in war service sciences in 47, he studies acting under coach Uta Hagen at the HB studio. Um, and okay. his earliest success in film or his earliest role in film is the lady takes a sailor where he plays a bit part as a plasterer. Um, and at this time television is already making its big break. So he appeared in about 400 television shows, which ran the gamut from 1948 to 1953. So that's, that's called work ethic. That's called five years of, I, I can't breathe. <laughs> I need a break. <laughs> when will it come? It would come though, Adam, it would come. He wouldn't have to hustle and bustle around television because he did eventually get his first big break 
in Hollywood in in Hollywood with the movie It Should Happen to You in 1954. Um and mm-hmm. he actually was on a track for a stage for stage success with a revival of the comedy Room Service, but it closed after 2 weeks. Luckily, he's scouted by a talent scout working for Columbia, and then Columbia's head, Harry Kahn, wanted to change Lemon's name in case it was used to describe the quality of the actor's films. But Lemon said, no, I'm a lemon for life. <laughs> so just, to, just just imagine, we don't, I don't think we use Principal. the term, we don't use the term lemon to describe somebody in, like, in, the, in the dumps anymore, do we? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in tight. I'm not in touch with slang. I don't know what kids are saying. <laughs> um, and it should happen to you makes his break. Um, and from there he s- is seen in films like, Fft, which we discussed in a previous episode as a uh, movie that deliberately explains the game of post office, which if you remember our discussion about post office, please don't play post office. It's creepy. Um, and then Novak had a secondary role in that movie, Kim Novak, as a love interest for Lemon's character. So this is around Novak kind of getting her bigger breaks. Uh, now, mm-hmm. here's here comes a bigger break than even It Should Happen to You. Hey, remember when I said you were going to get off easy this time? Not true. We got to briefly mention Mr. John, John Ford. Because Jack Lemmon got a very big break in a movie called Mr. Roberts, uh, which features, amongst others, James Cagney and Henry Fonda. Uh, Mr. Roberts is sort of like a naval uh, drama comedy-esque escapade. Um, And Ford wanted to cast Lemmon after seeing his Columbia screen tests. um, And after a meeting on the lot, Ford persuaded Lemon to appear in the film, but Lemon did not realize he was in conversation with John Ford at the time. He had no idea who the fuck he was talking to. To Lemon, he was mm. just talking to a cranky old racist man. <laughs> He's like, well, he seems to have power, but I wish he would stop using those words. <laughs> um, and, um, and then he also followed up some military madness with the movie Operation Madball, and then he meets... Ernie Kovacs uh, and becomes close friends with him and appears with him as a warlock in the movie Bell Book and Candle, um, which is a film he apparently did not like. Um, and then it happened to Jane um, along. Mm-hmm. All three of these films are directed by Richard Queen, who's another guy who worked with him for years. Um, and then uh, the, the other films that he would work with, with Queen are my sister, Eileen, the notorious landlady and how to murder your wife. Um, and then he gets some like it hot. Um, this is a role that if I am remembering my history correctly, Jerry Lewis was supposed to get and Jerry Lewis drove Wilder up a fucking wall. And so now we're getting somebody like lemon. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) apparently Wilder used to send Jerry Lewis, uh, thank you notes each year for for fucking passing on that role, <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's fair. Jerry Lewis deserves some humbleness. <laughs> he needs to be humbled a bit. <laughs> um, <sighs> and um, anyway, he gets into some like it hot. Um, he's brought into the apartment amongst others. The other big uh actor. Uh, in this, who is a, a a relative newcomer to Hollywood, although 
she was not extremely new, um, was Shirley MacLaine, um, who I would argue is the actual hero of today's movie. Um, yep. Yep. Bow, 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 bow. We have a wiener. <laughs> <laughs> how about those clowns in Congress? What a bunch of clowns. Wow. How does he keep up with the news like that? <laughs> Don't praise the Don't machine. Don't praise the machine. <laughs> Where's my elephant, Adam? <laughs> um, yes, Shirley MacLaine has been discussed by us on the Shamley Silhouette because one of her big breaks, in fact, her big film break, was in The Trouble with Harry. It's a movie that nobody fucking cared about when it came out, but I think time told us that it was fucking brilliant. Um, and now, it's called The Trouble with Harry. It's a movie about trying to get rid of a dead body and all the hilarious ways you can get about doing that. Uh, and Shirley MacLaine... Uh, plays a young wo- a young mother who uh, falls in love with William Forsythe in the movie. Uh, it is, I would argue, if Hitchcock, if that movie had been a success, Hitchcock might have done more comedies because it's basically a very dark comedy that only Hitchcock could have made at that time. Consequently, it's also probably why the movie didn't do super well apart from out overseas. It's also a movie, Adam, that features the beaver himself, uh, to uh, the beaver himself, uh, Jerry Mathers, as the lead oh. child in the movie, who discovers the dead body with his ray gun, his sci-fi ray gun, and it's that that uh, uh, infamous shot of the kid looking down at the feet of this dead body lying in the middle of a East Coast ground. Um, it's it's a mm. good movie. I think you'll like it. It's fun. Never um, seen it. I just know Shirley MacLaine kind of fell into the. Um, post 40s age bracket of she was in everything as someone's mom or mentor mm-hmm. of a female character. Yeah, that that she fell into that later on. Early on, she was she was much more of a uh, a a, com- a comedic actress, a leading lady. Um, this is a film that. I recommend to people, if you've never seen it, my first Shirley MacLaine movie, it's really funny. It's called What a Way to Go. It's about a woman who marries a bunch of ambitious men and each one of them die at her feet trying to trying to impress her. <laughs> um, hmm. Amongst the people that she kills in her wrath is Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> um, and uh, Dick well, I mean, Van Dyke... he had it coming. Well... I mean, you can't live that long and dance that good for that long without having it coming at some point, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. How how can you be that old and dance on the table in Mary Poppins Returns? You have to be some kind of god. <laughs> and um but anyway, uh yes, McLean at this point in her career, like it's I think that she she is her film career is kind of strange because she's right after trouble with Harry, she moves into around the world in 80 days, which is a best picture winner, but we do not really look fondly on this film today by any stretch. Um, and she gets a role in a movie called hot spell and a leading role in the movie. Some came running, um, where she does get her first Oscar nomination, but she's like, it's interesting how you start off in a flop, but people are latching onto you. She was on stage initially and Hitchcock saw her on stage and was like, I, I want her in trouble with Harry. Um, and so when she gets 
the role of the apartment. She's getting the role that's going to like literally like the, I would argue that Shirley MacLaine will forever be known for the apartment before anything else. I think like, mm. I, I'd have to I'd have to make that argument because like, I think people will think terms of endearment for that. OK, first. OK, that's fair. So it's those two films then, though. It's not even the trouble with Harry. I love the trouble with Harry. She's not gonna. It's gonna. It, the only that's gonna be a footnote is that was her first movie and it was with Hitchcock and that's it. <laughs> um, but the apartment or in terms of people endearment, will, people will remember her from the classic movie of being of what was it? The rumor. I can't remember, but it was the Kevin Costner Jennifer Aniston movie that was the oh. semi-true story about the tale of Mrs. Robinson and the Graduate. Yes, it's um, uh, rumor has it is the movie. Mm, um, yes, that's and a, she that... was, and she was quote unquote the real Mrs. Robinson. Aha! You see this? I've never seen this movie, <laughs> Adam. Should I even fucking bother? <laughs> I mean, if you want the early two thousands, you know, rom com. Yeah, and hey, it's got Rob Reiner behind it. That might be fun. I like Rob Reiner. Or, behind. or you could watch her in the hit uh, reboot of Bewitched with Will no, Ferrell. We're, no, we're not going to do. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're now see now you're now you're just poking holes in the legacy of Miss McLean, who by the way, is still no. alive. So if she's yes, listening to this, I love you, Shirley. I can't speak for Adam. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy Shirley McLean as well. Yes. So, um, you know what? Actually, or you can, or you know, movie fans, you can go out and see her in her most latest at playing the fun elf in the movie Noel. Currently airing on Disney Plus. Plug. Uh-huh. Oh, the can the Anna Kendrick joint, eh? Um yes. yeah. You know what? Actually, I liked her in Bernie. She's really good in Bernie, the Jack Black um Richard Linklater uh, yeah. movie. Yeah, she's really fun That's in that. <laughs> she's an unbearable mess that Bernie has to kill. <laughs> Bernie has to murder. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty damn funny. Um oh, but I, the, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> That would bring me to my, uh, well, I guess that theory doesn't fit with Bernie because it is somewhat of a true story. So never mind. Yeah. But it's going would, into the character extended universe, but we can yeah. cover that here. I would argue that Bernie is a good, um, uh, pairing with trouble with Harry, um, just from the thematic alone. Cause it's comedy delving into the macabre, but it's not, not Tim Burton macabre. It's Richard Linklater macabre, <laughs> which is kind of like, you know, just the I just the, better. Yeah, just the situation alone is enough to make you creepy, creeped out while still laughing your ass off. Um, but the last thing that we have to mention is um, our old friend Freddie is back in the picture with Mr. Wilder. That's right. You know him. You love him, Mr. Fred McMurray. Um, I don't remember how much we talked about his history, but this this. This gentle saxophone playing man who did not graduate from college makes his big break in Roberta on Broadway, starts working in the late 30s uh, with directors like Billy Wilder and Preston Sturgis, along with actresses like Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda and Humphrey Bogart. Um, a film that I love him in that I've, uh, since recording our Double Indemnity episode, I watched Remember the Night, and him and Barbara Stanwyck in that movie are a delight. 
So I have been going through my own little uh, slow by slow, bit by bit, uh, McMurray reevaluation. Is that is is he more than just this Disney goofy dad? Um, but um, and it's funny at this point. This is just before he starts really breaking into that Disney mold and. I don't know if you've heard this, Adam, but I, I was looking into this. It seems like this is literally the last bad guy role he ever plays in a movie. Like, like and if you're talking about a heel role, like, this is the last time he really does it before he kind of slips into the the, Dis, the the fun-loving Disney dad nature film, you know? Um, which, you know, you in a lot of ways... Like most big actors, they want... They want to make that transition something that their kids can watch. Them. It's your classic case. Yes, exactly. And McMurray was no. I mean, look, you know, McMurray had done his his deed for for God and country. You know, he played Walter Neff. He's now he's we're now as we're going to talk about him. He's played Sheldrake. You know, sometimes you just want to play your saxophone and be goofy with your kids on on the set of a Disney movie and go to Disneyland. What's wrong with that? Um, but mm-hmm. um, and I will say that there are some stories following the reception of the movie where I'm just like, yeah, I would leave this situation too. <laughs> if you <laughs> if you told me this is what happened, I would be like, yeah, I, I get it. You, you you're gonna you're gonna duck out. Um, yeah. But so all this should we get up. into it? Let's get yeah. into it. I think I we should. On yep, I say I, we we. We've we've dawdled long enough outside in the street. We're going to move into this apartment here. Directed by Billy Wilder, produced by Billy Wilder, written by Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond, starring Jack Lemon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, Jack Jack Crucian, Ray Walston, David Lewis, Edie Adams as Miss Olson, Hope Holiday, Joan Shawley, Naomi Stevens, Johnny Seven, Joyce Jameson, Hal Smith, Willard Waterman, and David White, um, with brilliant cinematography by Joseph Lachelle, and some of the best production design you will ever see in a comedy, period, by Alexandre Tauerner, uh, and released by the United Artists Motion Picture Company June 30th, 1960. We open up on, well, first we get our opening title sequence, which is outside of a set of apartments, and from there, Adam, we are given a big old shot of the city, and we get a voiceover. And the voiceover is giving us nerdy statistics <laughs> of how many people are in this city. And <laughs> you're kind of hearing our our lead here going like, you know what? I don't really like this place, but I don't mind it either. Like he's just like he's just yeah. settled. <laughs> he's just like this is where I am. I have to deal with this the rest of my life. And I'm trying to. The the one part of the film where I'm like, I don't know if I need this is only because I've seen this done so many times in rom-coms or certain types of singular voice comedies where they have a shot of the city and somebody's narrating a, uh, a, an obscure fact that relates to the plot of the film. It's almost like it's the... This is the down-to-earth version of the voiceover narration you get in his noirs. So it's not leading to anything sinister. It's mundane. It's the mundane yeah. version of a noir narrator. <laughs> but the voiceover that I mean, could you call it a Billy Wilder trope? I'd argue you could. 
we'd have to go back even further and dig into how many times because I know that there's I believe there's I know there's voiceovers in other parts of his films. I need to go back to Lost Weekend because I can't remember if there is in that. Um, but I mean, he's done it three on um, three of his biggest movies. Three <laughs> of his biggest movies have it. You know what we should do? Like just just on our off time, we just scout out Billy Wilder films that aren't these these big three that we're talking about. And if we mm-hmm. see voiceover, we say something <laughs> and just like literally like write it down. And then we take a statistics like, like at the end of the year being like, OK, I found three more Billy Wilder movies with voiceover. This guy really oh. loved voiceover. Uh, the only other person who probably loves it more is Scorsese. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I will say that, like, I was trying to figure, like, who the fuck remembers useless facts like this about the popular? Oh, wait, I'm a fucking movie nerd, of course. Um, you know, yeah, but we're 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 in league with Baxter to a certain degree in the regards of useless knowledge. <laughs> but um, back CC Bud Baxter are played by Jack Lemon is uh, working at an insurance company. Um and in the in the heart of the New, of New York City, and the, remember when I said the brilliant production designer uh, and his name? Yes. This office set is incredible that we see. That is, it's like Kafka esque. It just it feels like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> like you are trapped in somebody's goddamn the corporate rose. nightmare. <laughs> And rows of people and never ending of never ending sound of typewriters mm-hmm. going. Yep. Now do you know how they pulled that off, Adam? <laughs> no. You're gonna have fun with this one. Uh the so this not unlike a Hobbit movie, uh the uh art director Alexandre Alexandre Tarner Utilize force perspective to encapsulate mm. encapsulate the image of the long and endless spaces of these insurance offices. As the room goes further back, the desks themselves become smaller, and so do the people. Eventually, to the point where in the ferry back, you have children sitting in those desks. This is uh, not unknown territory to us. When we talked with Matt Willicks on Casablanca, Casablanca has probably the most famous use of force perspective when they are showing shots of the plane that's going to take Ilsa Mm -hmm. and Victor to um, Lisbon, you have little people um, maintenancing the plane for the force perspective, which also led the sound man to not believe his own eyes when he saw that on set. And I'm like, you work in Hollywood. You've seen everything. Shut up. (laughs) um, But this... Probably word for word what they said. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, um, well, I'll send you the audio clip of what he says, and I'm like, yeah, just stop it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like he's clearly hamming it up for this behind the scenes retrospective, and I'm like, you need yeah. to stop. <laughs> um, but uh, and what's funny is like even as it's occupied, it it looks it it looks uh anxiety ridden when it's occupied. When it's empty, it's depressing. <laughs> Like it is like just I don't know what it is like we'll get to that image later but it just feels like this hollow like you feel as hollow as anybody working in that office it it just looks depressing as shit Mm -hmm. um and I mean (laughs) we the moment we are entered in on his particular situation um. 
he is so I I need to know because I don't think they fully explain it in the movie, Adam. How long has he been doing this realistically? Like years wise, are we talking? I think he's probably been there at least because he's just a the way he's pitched in the beginning. Yeah. He's pitched as this mind not mindless, but this drone worker bee. Yeah. And exactly. he's been there at least I would say at least two years. Yeah. If I had if I had to put a guess on it. Um But he's done similar things like this in like I think he said in like college or something like that. Like he did similar things like this prior that he's telling Sheldrake in the office later. Mm-hmm. Um but like it, it, you're immediately coming in uh, at you're you're first seeing a, a couple go in to the proceedings of the apartment. And we are basically seeing that lemon is left off to the side going like, yep, they're going up there. They're going to go bang. And, uh, and right away you, uh, you, if, if the audience of watching this from a modern context is wondering why in the world would they just be using some guy's apartment for this? If you went to a motel or a hotel at this time, yeah, you would be at the mercy of a house detective because, there there were there were hotels at this point that the more people uh coming in and out that were having affairs outside of marriage the assumption was made by them that they were turning the hotel into a brothel and so the house detective would literally bang on your door and go are you in there with a woman that isn't your wife <laughs> so the the best way to get around this from an affair standpoint is to use an apartment because it's safe and feasibly, if you're using somebody else's apartment, nobody's going to know you were there other than you might have been a guest of the person staying there, et cetera, et cetera. Good point. Cetera. Yeah. So this is like, and again, that's 101 from Zach Eastman. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'll, I, me and Billy Wilder are going to teach you all kinds of shit today, guys. <laughs> Brought to you by Lucky Strike. Lucky Strike cigarettes. Yes. You want to cheat on your wife, cheat on your wife and then smoke a lucky it's toasted to make your sex even better. Um, and, uh, look, I, I, I want a bud prequel of how he got here too. Like that's the, that's the other thing. I, I do want the prequel movie of him learning how to, to come up with this scheme. Do, do we, do we not, really need it? N- not when we get to what we're talking about today. No, but like, off the bat, like off of the cuff, I'm just like, well, no, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm saying, do we really need a CC Baxter origin story? Like how we needed a Cruella origin story. I mean, if the reviews are correct, Cruella is apparently going to be the next best thing ever to happen to <laughs> cinema. <laughs> I know I saw that trailer and I said, Joker. And then just walked away. Um, but we not only so we we see that and we also get we get interactions with Bud's neighbors, which are very important. And I feel like I mean it's it's pretty on the nose, but like his neighbors are providing like the the, the basically the goals of Bud Baxter as a character in this movie. He needs to stop being a schmuck and he needs to be a mensch. Um, in the words of his wonderful yeah. doctor neighbor, Doctor Dreyfus, played by Jack Crucian. Um and I mean, like, just just the amount of, like, him holding... Like, he's been doing this for so long that he's got, like, cover stories. He's got, like, backups for it and whatnot. His neighbors are concerned, but they... But 
Dreyfus automatically suspects, like, you are up to no good. I don't know exactly what it is, but you are just, like, absolutely up to no fucking good. And if I can pinch you, I'm going to pinch you. And yeah, he, he shrugs it off, and then he goes back into his apartment, and he starts cleaning up after the people that were there, or that are there who are about to leave. And the guy coming out after his lovemaking which I know sounds clinical. Hear me out here. He complains that there's not enough of that food he likes in the fucking in the kitchen, mm. like like or out on the. I think it was either that or out in the middle of the um uh uh in the living room or whatever. Like he's. I, I love yeah, that the setup is automatically. This is being he's being treated like a hospitality service, <laughs> and not as a person. <laughs> And it only works because Lemon looks the way he does and acts the way he does. <laughs> like he's true. He's he's allowing himself to be crawled over constantly in this film, which don't feel too sympathetic for Bud. As I even as I say this, because I'm looking at it from a multi-angle perspective here. For uh, for any sympathy that you can have towards Bud, there's also a lot of nonsense coming out of his mouth especially later on. <laughs> um, and you understand that kind of like the brilliance of lemon as a performer is because I think Wilder know and lemon know that Bud is not a nice guy. He's not a monster, but he's not a nice guy. <laughs> he's, he's a schmuck as I said at the top. <laughs> um, that's true. Uh, and, after he has gotten the other occupant cleared out and he's cleaning up and he's getting ready for to, to enjoy his evening, which consists of him eating a chicken leg and watching uh, television, uh, a, a, a TV movie of the night that will never start, which is Grand Hotel. The amount of times that we hear him announce Grand Hotel, this is my this is my favorite like non-plot related joke in the movie is just watching Billy Wilder play with TV tropes. <laughs> Um, and just kind of laying into the amount of commercials that would be in between movies of the night and whatnot, especially when you're announcing hey, something like Grand Hotel. <laughs> I still get frustrated to this day. Like yeah. my wife, my wife gets so mad at me. Like you have TV ADD. I'm like, yeah, because I hate fucking commercials. So when I'm going between eight channels and they're all on commercials, it's annoying. Yeah, you you are a child of the channel surfing age, sir. You know how to press the remote button like a pro. <laughs> exactly you can you can glaze glide on through there but his evening is going to get even more interrupted because he gets a call from another person wanting to use the apartment but adam it's very important that you realize this girl looks like marilyn monroe (laughs) so of (laughs) course bud's got to make this his number one priority (laughs) and they did get like a pretty good damn good marilyn monroe Monroe look-alike um and it does work in its favor to be like, if you had a Marilyn Monroe cameo, this would not work. But <laughs> having it like be a Monroe-esque character does work for the gag that they are setting up. Well, um, I think it's, you know, because Marilyn Monroe had been the Some Like It Hot a year before. Mm-hmm. And so I think that because she looks she looks nothing and she sounds nothing like Marilyn Monroe and I and you have that built-in gag of just being like, looks just like Marilyn Monroe. It's like Billy Wilder of all people would would know. Yeah, it, it's they're doing the um, 
it, if anything, if we're talking about like blonde bombshells of the era, she she resembled much more of a Jane Mansfield. But the implication is of the of the the blonde bombshell, ca- yeah. like that actress of the fifties. Um, and Bud is you know stumbling over his words like no 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 listen no 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 and then finally he relents. <laughs> And uh, gives these guys the apartment for the night, and you see again the proce- you see more of the procedure of them getting to the apartment, looking for the key, coming in. This guy lying his ass off to this woman he met in the bar, and then you see oh. Bud. Well, go ahead. <laughs> is he? Is it for the night? Or uh, well, for a, for a small amount of time. But here's the thing: yeah. somebody's not able to get back in later on because he gets a That's cold. True. While staying outside in the park because he's got to wait until this person's done. And that's another lonely shot where you've got some nice forced perspective there. I'm assuming either that or utilizing your location really well where you see him alone on the park benches of Central Park. Like that is that's loneliness in a nutshell, my friend. That is that is just nuts. Um, And. From there, we get him going into the office the next day. He's got a cold. He's doing cold acting like Tom Hanks in Bridge of Spies, which makes it really cool. Um, <laughs> and um, the uh, he gets in the elevator where, of course, we get our we get our main introduction to uh, Fran Kubelik, played by Shirley MacLaine. Um, they have a little conversation about how she cut her hair. And they, there's, there's a little bit of a, I don't want to say meat cute, because this isn't a meat cute. This is just, this is him having a crush and them having a light flirt or whatever the heck this is. I don't know. Like Kubelik's got her own issues to deal with. She does not need to be dealing with Bud and his cold. Um, Yeah. Six feet apart. I don't care if it's in a crowded elevator, six feet apart. (laughs) And um, uh, once in the office, he immediately is brought into a scheduling kerfuffle of the many fucking people who want to use his goddamn apartment. I am like, that scene is brilliant <laughs> editing. <laughs> Cross-cutting between five other different people trying to make the schedule coordinate so that he can get some fucking sleep. <laughs> yeah. And if you guys want to know how it, what it's like to schedule a podcast, it's this scene. <laughs> Except I do get sleep. Um, yeah. D- well, debatable. And um, and within that, too, he starts getting calls from people who tell him, like, I'm already recommending you for, like, within those reschedulings, he's just like, look, you've got this evaluation coming up, and I was going to be recommending you to Sheldrake. <laughs> and yeah. within that, after figuring everything out, look who gets a call to the top level where Baxter is in a meeting now with Jeff D. Sheldrake, the personnel manager of this insurance company. Um, or as I've referred to him as, Boo Sheldrake, boo! <laughs> um, now, Sheldrake is the traditional heel of this movie, but Mr. Adam, you alluded to having a hot take on Mr. Sheldrake or Mr. McMurray. Do you care okay. to elaborate? This all goes into the extended Billy Wilder, Fred McMurray universe BWFMCU. yes <laughs> exactly <laughs> so this is all before they get disappeared and then they come back via portals and whole thing 
Oh um, yeah, William Holden took the longest to come back after the snap. <laughs> yeah, he was floating in a pool the first time. They had to find yeah. another pool. But you know, <laughs> but you know who was there the entire time? Barton Keys. Um, that is true. There's insurance to be solved. <laughs> insurance, law and order, insurance crimes. <laughs> um, no, but think of it. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Yeah. So you have. Who's I'm going to I'll pose this with a question. Who's to say that Sheldrake and Walter Neff are not the same person? But but Adam, we saw him clearly bleeding out and Barton Keys was going to turn him in. Did we? We did cut to the end. And if you recall from our discussion on Double Indemnity, we did not get the scene where Walter Neff would have clearly been executed. <laughs> exactly. So I picture this. Okay. So Walter Neff, he's bleeding out. He actually gets the metal, medical attention. Everyone, like the medics get there, they patch him up, they stabilize him. He's handcuffed to the bed. Barton Keys walks back in and he's talking about, you know, I've been thinking, got a raw deal. Duh, 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 duh. You know, don't make, you know, Make the most of your life. Like what Tom Hanks said to Matt Damon before he died in Saving Private Ryan, earn it. Yep. And he leaves him the key on the bed. Yeah. And so he takes the key, unlocks himself, sneaks out of the hospital, gets home, changes, you know, packs, packs one bag, and then just like that, it's gone. And now into the into the wind, and throughout trying several jobs, he says, "You know what? Insurance game. That's where I am." And this is also the '40s and '50s. You know, not a lot of cross communication between coasts. So he rebrands himself as I forget what is his first name, Jeff D. Sheldrake. <laughs> he rebrands himself as Jeff D. Sheldrake. I see. He works his he works his way up to the insurance company and becomes head of personnel. He might he meets a nice lady, and be, to become Miss, Mrs. Sheldrake has some kids. But alas, lo and behold, he can't keep it in his fucking he, pants. <laughs> he just can't. He's he's like, look, I know I messed up and I killed a person, but I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna go that far. But I can't be married. I'll just kill their spirit instead of their body. <laughs> wow. So, this is turning and dark. Then, and then he becomes, and then he goes back to his old ways of having illicit affairs. This time he's the married man. And this time Barton Keys isn't around to stop it. <laughs> that's that's what makes this movie more dangerous. You don't have the security blanket of Barton Keys. <laughs> so... So who's to say one Sheldrake is not one Mr. Neff? And I'll even take you one further. Give okay. me give me more of this rabbit hole, please. <laughs> then, you know what? After he gets ditched by Miss Kublik on New Year's Eve, he has a long sit and think. He's like, you know what? It is now 1960 or 1961. Times are changing. Because remember, at one point, 
he says to he says to Baxter, I believe when they get back to when he is threatening him, mm-hmm. be like, look, give me the apartment key back or else you're fired. And, you know, he is caught up with times. He even goes, he even asks Baxter. He says, he goes, Baxter, he's like, it took you however many years, take you years to get up to this level, but only 30 seconds to get to be put out on the street. And then he says this exact word, phrase. He goes, you dig? So he's getting, (laughs) he's getting with the times. And then so after being left on New Year's, he then decides to settle down and he's like, you know what? I know what I had and I lost it and I want it back. Which then takes us into the whole rebrand that he, that he suffers under Disney. Yeah. There you go. It's now just like Bon Voyage. He's Mr. Sheldrake. Cause He's not Barry Vogel or Bon Vogel or what's his name? Um, Harry Willard. His name is Harry Willard. Excuse me. Yeah. He's not Harry Willard. He's Walter Neff who became uh, Jeff D. Sheldrake, who then became Harry Willard. He's like, okay, he lost his family. And so once again, as Walter Neff does, Changes his name again. Please, can it, can I can I stop you and ask you? Does he? he you said Harry Willard for Bon Voyage, but before yeah. that, he would have had to learn the physics behind Flubber to become Professor Ned Brainerd, and then he would go from Harry Willard back into Ned Brainerd for That's Son true. of Flubber, and then he turns into Tad McLeod for Kisses for My President. Which hold the. Oh, the fucking not, phone. Not going that far. <laughs> it's much is just contained within the double indemnity apartment, right into the Bon Voyage. Yeah, you want to take this to Bon Voyage territory? <laughs> this is how he like, gets away. <laughs> I like this theory. I like this. Now, I only have one question because we are dealing with a sort of McMurray universe that ties into Wilder. How does Gloria Swanson's monkey in Sunset Boulevard fit into it? Please tell me it does somehow. <laughs> mm, I don't know. Okay. To be continued. We'll have to. <laughs> You're going to have to go back to the tape. Yeah. Well, we may have to retcon this episode, much like a lot of comic book franchises have to retcon their material, <laughs> uh, yeah. which I don't think is unfair. If they're allowed to do it, why the fuck can't we? <laughs> um <laughs> But, but I will say there is a strong connection between Walter Neff and one Jeff D. Sheldrake. They are they are two sides of the same coin. They are two opposite sides of the same coin. Like it's it Walter Neff is the insurance guy who goes down the CD route and Sheldrake really just goes down the mundane route. Like and, I, and when I say mundane, I don't mean boring. I mean like no, noir and what this film is are clearly two different things. I'd argue that this carries the same weight that a noir can, but it's not going for the same punch that noir does. And the black and white and the uh, the way that it is shot by Joseph Lachelle, it evokes some noir imagery at times. It's not strictly like the same that like Double Indemnity would like make famous mm-hmm. or even something like Out of the Past. 
but it's there. Like it's dealing with a different type of reality or a CD reality. And th- in this case, it's the amount of emotional damage you leave behind when you do the things that Sheldrake does, or even the things that Jack Lemon does in this movie. Um, well, I think Billy Wilder is all about exploring. I mean, this is a very large spectrum, but exploring um, less than savory characters. Because if you look at it throughout a lot of his movies, like obviously in like Sunset Boulevard and uh, Some Like It Hot, or not Some Like It, uh, Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity, yeah. you know, these or even Lost, people. Lost Weekend too. Lost yeah. Weekend is like a prime example of that. Yeah. And even this, like you said, it's mundane, but it's still like, these still aren't good people. Like you said, Baxter still isn't, he's not a, I wouldn't say he's a bad person, but he's definitely not like a good person. Like he's obviously, yes, he gets pushed around um, in his own very Jack Lemony way that he kind of, he, I would say Jack Lemon invented that comedic style. The aw shucks, um, not, well, yeah, I would say I would say gullible. The aw uh, shucks, gullible pushover. Ah, uh, come on, um, Gil, you had one more chance, and then you just <laughs> let it flush down the toilet. Ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um. And like even Baxter, he's not the he's not a very good person because there's so many times when he's siding with Sheldrake over um, Miss Kublik. Yeah. And it goes uncomfortable more than I would like. Here's here's a question that I have, because we talked about in the Searchers episode especially what people mm-hmm. see then as opposed to what we see now. I'm going to make the argument that people pretty early on were tuned into the fact that Baxter's not a great guy. Maybe not everybody, but I would think more people than not would have already been in tune with that idea. You don't, you don't loud this performance this early on without understanding that he's just as culpable in emotional damage as Sheldrake. Maybe not from the same standpoint, but <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think it's more of a sign of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at it, you know, a lot of this was always accepted to be like, well, you're having an affair with his wife is like, but don't blame the man for doing it. Blame the woman. She should have known better, which is like, get the fuck out of my face with that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it takes two to tango. Like shell Drake is just as bad, if not worse, which he is. Yeah. Um, and usually the person who is in the relationship that is doing the cheating and not the mistress or, you know, the lover. Yeah. I shouldn't even say mistress and just the lover, like the person who's doing the actual cheating, they're the worst person because they're emotionally manipulating two people. Yep. Exactly. Um, so anyway, but I think it's more of the sign of the times. Cause I don't think people probably picked up on this until, I don't know, maybe two thousands. Okay. Because, because the whole institution of marriage, I'm using air quotes, um, <laughs> yep. was around even when, you know, there were still high divorce rates and things like that. It's like, yeah, but he's a married man and this is marriage and it's for life. It's like, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
people still sided with that. And they're like, well, look at something like Goodfellas, because I just watched that the mm-hmm. other day. Yeah. Funny enough. Uh, hey, how uh, funny? The scene for- <laughs> this. <laughs> like, Rita Redner. <laughs> oh, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> Um, but you look at the, the scene where Karen is in the apartment building, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Janice, yeah. Rossi. I want R- Mrs. So- Mrs. Silverman. I want you to know that there's a whore in your apartment. <laughs> Janice Rossi. Rossi. 4A. <laughs> so, I mean, granted, it then goes from that and cutting to Karen holding a gun to Henry's face. Oh, but yeah. It's Janice is more is vilified just as much, if not more. Just mm-hmm. being like, well, you're. And so I think that goes that goes back, you know, much further back. You know, it's always a woman who's at fault, never the man. Yep. And um, but that's mainly because in Hollywood. And just in general, in society as a whole, it's masculine dominated, male male dominated, and so male dominated. They are able to tell the narrative. Their perspective overwhelms the perspective of others who have a different element to tell of the tale, or in fact, even the truth. Um, this is something that I thought about the more I kept going back to the film in prepping for this episode, because I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to disagree with you in the fact that um, I do think people tuned into this now, whether or not they tuned into it on the level that we would today. Absolutely not. But I have to imagine there is at least the acknowledgement that the Baxter character is much more complex than your simple bumbling rom-com idiot. Um, Mm. Even a critic or even like, I mean, let's take it a step. I mean, we'll take it to the obvious factors is that Wilder and Lemon must have known like, oh, Baxter is not a great guy. Like this is not, I mean, you think about what Baxter's reasons are for doing this. He's using it to advance himself. Which oh yeah, which goes back to the story that inspired it. You know, this low-level lackey of Lang, offering up his apartment to Lang and Joan Bennett. He's doing it to yeah. probably advance his career. So yeah. there's another element of that, like ladder climbing, uh, like climbing up the corporate ladder element, where like I think people, but also at the same time they kind of try and downplay it because when they first, when Baxter's in first, when you first have the interaction between Baxter and Sheldrake. Mm-hmm. Baxter tells him like, well, you know, a friend of mine was living in Jersey and he needed a place to change to get into his tuxedo for a party. And so I let him use my place. And then everyone apparently needed a place to change for their party. Nobody has a fucking room of their own. (laughs) It's just like, are you just that dumb? So they try and downplay. They try and downplay. I feel like that's a way to downplay his culpability. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, no, that's early on it's established to be like, but then you see things when they're in the apartment together, Baxter and Gublik being, um, where she's like, well, I need to call someone. It's like, no, you can't call anyone. 
because then we'll get people in trouble and we don't want to get people in trouble. And then you can definitely see where he is out for himself in that because he sees like, well, you're not just going to be ruining Mr. Sheldrake's life. You're also going to be ruining mine because I'm on the up and up and heading up and on the fast track up the corporate ladder of the insurance game. Exactly. And but and so like here's what I'm here's what I guess that I'll like say ultimately is is that like all the signs are there for you to recognize that Baxter is not the greatest person in the world. And I and you're probably right within the span of like wide acceptance of that basic fact doesn't come until around the 2000s when people start looking at film film relationship dynamics differently relationships in general dynamics differently um i i just find it very fascinating that it's a movie from this early on that's treading into territory that this movie i don't think is perceived the same way it was in 1960 as an overall experience i look at this as Mm -hmm. a straight up like uh, a, a a like transgressive for its era look at the realities of how men behave but yes i think i yeah. think you're right i think it is saying i think it is saying like while they're kind of almost holding a mirror up to just men of the time being like oh well i can do this because i can but there are um, complications within how they approach holding that mirror up because of not just because of how true. they portray Baxter, but Sheldrake doesn't get put off the hook, but there are moments in the film where I wonder if they're trying to like trick you with empathizing with Sheldrake in some way. It's like, it's maybe it's just the way McMurray's playing it. I don't know if it's necessarily the intent of the writers, but well, I think it was more of a, I think it was a sign of the times, A, in Hollywood, because Hayes Code is still around, maybe? They're, the Sherlock um, office is there, but they're very, very, like, their grip is, like, loosened so much that, like, okay. they're barely walking around. Okay. And then also, like you said, there's still the institution of marriage. And so it's just, like, don't upset the institution of marriage mm-hmm. and don't make this, even though, like, this man is a bad guy, he's still... He's still a man, so don't make him out too bad. Yeah. Uh, which is why it's like, I think they try and show him in a more flattering light at some point where it's like, oh, look, it's Christmas Day. And you know what? He is focusing on his family instead of being with his mistress. Focus on the family. That sounds like a name of a dumb group. <laughs> um. <laughs> to say the um. least. Yeah, but uh, the um, the the I agree that it, actually what's funny because of those restrictions, oddly enough, where they have to like level it out somehow, it makes his character worse. <laughs> it it ends up making his character worse in so many ways. <laughs> well, I think I think yeah, that's just kind of the sign of how this is aged, where it just makes it because. Everything now, especially with mental health, mm-hmm. is being brought to the brought to the front, and and then Kubl- you see yeah. something where she is man- emotionally abusive to the point where he's almost gaslighting her, um, 
And to the point where she is driven to do something like this. Um, and then he is just like, hmm, no, well, I, I don't need to get my hands dirty. It's like, you caused this. You are part of the problem. You, you are I the mean, reason that this is happening. Yeah. I agree with you that, like, they, they're, 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 the, Actually, you bringing up mental health um, in this movie captures my attention. I kind of want to pause it for when we get to the event that happens. And also, I'll, I'll frankly, when we get to the deeper moments involving Kublik. At the moment right now, Kublik is only seen through our eyes as the uh, uh, elevator operator. Um, mm-hmm. uh, arguably, and like uh, behind the scenes documentaries I saw in this film described her with this like this pixie charm and whatnot. And like this, like this, I think this element of like the, the, like she's not a, uh, an ingenue by the traditional sense. Um, she, she looks realistic. Um, yeah. And, but let's talk about this conversation in the office for a second, because Mm -hmm. Sheldrake, (laughs) I think there is very much, uh, a, a a good backing for your M- your FMCU theory here, <laughs> because Sheldrake is basically interviewing Baxter for this job, and he goes like, and he he basically alludes to like, I'm on to your fucking game, Baxter, and Baxter's like, and he alludes to the fact that somebody was running a book running jo- a, a booking joint for gambling out of these offices. <laughs> yeah. in his early time. Bold. Now, remember when I said I wanted a Baxter prequel movie? Well, I'll take that back. I want that movie. <laughs> who's running the who's running gambling out of the insurance industry apart from the ins- insurance industry itself? <laughs> oh, I figured it out. Oh, there you go. Lay it on me. One Jeff one Jeff D. Sheldrake. And he uses his manipulative prowess as Walter Neff to mm-hmm. pin it on the head of personnel where he then becomes head of personnel. Yeah. Jeff D. Oh. Sheldrake. Ooh. So this is how he climbs the ladder further. But I'm correct. I'm, st- I'm not going to lie. Even though this, this does work within your theory. I still want an oceans 11 movie set in this office. now. <laughs> well, I don't think it'd be ocean 11. I think it would be definitely more the sting. Maybe it'd be a very, something like that. The sting, like some sort of cat and mouse game. Okay. Fair enough. The other thing I noticed in this is that because he's got his cold, he's sniffling up a storm and he's taking nasal spray. He's going to be coming to Afrin junkie. He does. He does mention to Miss Kublik when they're leaving. He's like, boy, I felt at the beginning of the day, I felt terrible. And then by now he's like, well, I feel I could just do a dance. He does like a little dance and he's like, we're going to go to the show and then we're going to go out dancing. We're going to go for drinks. It's like, I, I took I, I I took some sn- I, I took some Selznick snuff and now I feel great. <laughs> now I know how that guy can make Gone with the Wind. It's all this energy, all of it. Fran, how about a date? All this energy in me from courtesy of Selznick snuff. <laughs> um, there you go. <laughs> um, and of course, this is where Sheldrake is like, "Look, I know about the apartment, and now that I know about the apartment, give me the key. <laughs> give me the key." And right from there, basically, like, without even knowing it, like, he's making his, like, last huge bargain with the devil, <laughs> um, especially yeah. with what's unfolding. And 
McMurray McMurray is really brilliant in this film the way he plays Sheldrake. The way he is actively giving off the air of looking at this logic. He's looking at this logically in quotes. He's looking mm-hmm. at this from a objective point of view. He's almost as if he's detached himself from the realities of his mistakes. And <laughs> and he's he's really brilliant in the way he does it. It does sound like the boss character you'd hear in any other movie explaining like the, yeah. the realities of the business world and he's just applying it to his rela- inner working intermarital relationships. Like it is just like insane how like from moment one, Sheldrake is an asshole. You like you it's not I'd have very little to no sympathy for this character, not just from a modern context, but like if we mm-hmm. put aside all the baggage we had, what we have with this from the time's sake, if I'm watching this, I'm like, he's the villain. Like you just, you know it right off the bat. You don't even have to have the conversation with him and Fran. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy how it's almost like, I, I know I talked about the Coen brothers taking stuff from double indemnity and noirs and stuff like that. I've seen Coen brothers characters act like this too. Like, the characters that are in direct opposition of of the of the of a lead character's goal, like this is a stretch, but Jerry's father-in-law in Fargo, like just going like I'm not talking mm-hmm. about your damn word, Jerry. <laughs> like, like you, yeah. you you you're almost like set up to not like him until you get to the overall wraparound with Francis McDormand, where you're like, well, everybody's terrible except for Francis McDormand in this movie. Um, but like that type of portrayal and Sheldrake's playing it off in such a fifties ho-hum manner that it becomes sinister underneath. Um, and he then proceeds to actively engage in the services of this apartment immediately because he was going to take some people from marketing to the music man. Uh, but, uh, that's not happening because he's going to go see his, his lady friend who we don't know who she is yet. Wink. And well, um, it wasn't, it wasn't marketing. It was head of the Kansas oh, city branch. Oh, head, head of the Kansas city branch. That's right. And so he offers Baxter the tickets in exchange. So it's like, not only are you getting a promotion, but you're getting two tickets to Meredith Wilson's Bash Smash musical. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The year it came out. The year it came out. Yeah. This is a big deal. This is not a, uh, this is not a small thing. The Music Man was a major hit when it came out. Um, the, the, The creator of that musical, by the way, was a, noted band leader who worked under amongst other things in radio under the Burns and Allen program where he played a comic role in it. Um, music man, the, the movie, it's the movie version of it is fine. Um, and, um, <laughs> it's not my favorite musical. Sorry. <laughs> there, there's okay. others I like. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but so he, He's he as you alluded to earlier. He gets down to the down down on the elevator. He meets up with Miss Kubelik again. He's like, you know what? I feel great. I took my amphetamines and I'm all set for the day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I feel great. Why don't we go to see the Music Man together? How about we go see the Music Man? Okay, great. Well, I figured I'd take you to dinner first tonight. And she's like, Oh, not tonight. I'm meeting with somebody. And then they work out what time the musical's starting versus this meeting that she has, which she says will only take a little while. Uh, and then yeah. she agrees to meet him outside the theater for the music man on time. And 
as they walk out the door and Baxter's just elated over uh, like a pig in shit over the fact that he's going to get this 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 encounter further with Kubelik. Um and the the conversation delves into health statistics which he only knows her health statistics because she lo- he looked into her insurance files. Yeah, that's, that's a fucking a crime. Huge, <laughs> not only that, but that's a huge red flag when you're trying when you're probably looking at a potential date. Alert. Alert. <laughs> like I know your social security number, I know where you live, I know your health issues. <laughs> I tried to think. I tried to think is there a part of Billy Wilder who was on the set where he's just like, I don't know, IAO. You think think we got a horror movie here? <laughs> you think we got a slasher movie of some kind? I know Hitchcock's doing one over at Universal there working for Paramount, but I think we may have a better chance at a good slasher movie. You think Jack Lemmon could <laughs> hold a knife pretty high? <laughs> have a big climax. Shirley McLean kicks his ass down a bunch of stairs. <laughs> Be glorious. Yeah, this is creepy as shit. And but she is taken to it. Like she doesn't find it creepy, which would lead to a sign of the times, I guess. I think in any time somebody looking into your personal information like that is bizarre. Yeah. To say the least. Um It's more and, it's definitely more than bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's and I I think honestly, Wilder saw this as a throwaway joke and didn't expect it to have the strange legs that it carries into today of like huge baggage. It it but literally it, seems like a one off joke from the era, but obviously it's not. not. <laughs> well, this is one of them. Yeah, exactly. Um and the only reason I bring that up is not to defend the character. It literally is just to contextualize the approach to dialogue, especially the kind of dialogue that Wilder had where you'd have, you would have like a gag a minute in like a traditional Mm -hmm. Wilder comedy. You wouldn't be, it's not about a slow burn. Like there are like hidden things you miss. Like, I mean the Marx brothers did this too. They'd have dialogue lapped upon dialogue, dialogue. Every time you watch like a movie of theirs, you're getting a new piece of dialogue here. It's being delivered, melded with drama so it's emphasizing the character and making him more quirky. But instead yeah. of being endearing today, it is considered, oh, my God, this is weird as shit. Um, and but she she rubs it off. He's like, whatever, I've got to first take care of this one asshole in my life. And they go to a restaurant uh, where we find out that Kubelik is there to see Sheldrake. Uh mm-hmm. oh, spaghetti. Hmm. They are. Uh, th- th- we find out that there hasn't been an affair going on between them, and she is over it because he has basically, as as you alerted, as alluded to the fact that Andrew Adam said manipulating. He has been manipulating her back and forth every five ways to Sunday, uh, promising to leave his wife to be with her. And playing the good old delay game of like, well, no, 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 you can't rush into these things. I mean, think about th- think about the children, think about my wife, blah, 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 blah. 
And it's just like, no, no, man, you're you're a douchebag. This just let's just fucking get this out of the way here. And Fran, Fran, Fran in this scene, it's the moment where you realize she's the hero of the movie right away. Yeah, like this is this is our entry point. Like th- like we, uh, I would argue that if you're a smart viewer, you are Fran, watching the so unfolding. This happens, this happens about what third twenty thirty minutes in. I yeah, I want to say about like tw- like twenty ish minutes in. Yeah, because the first scenes kind of run by pretty quickly. Like it moves at a clip, mm-hmm. and this is where it starts to slow down, but intentionally yeah. so for good reason. Um, and I made some notes on this particular situation. Uh, first of all, I made the note that like Wilder, despite indicating our hero clearly, like our hero and our villain or our leading and our like maiden or whatever, he makes the, uh, he makes no bones about the fact that no one is innocent of anything except for Fran. (laughs) Like he, Mm -hmm. he literally makes, he does not hide away from the fact that everybody in this film, apart from Fran is guilty of something. If the only like slight thing that Fran is guilty of is having an affair with another man, with an with yeah. a man, a married man, it's like, yeah, but not the same, not the same bag of bag of beans here, you know. Like, this is she is flat out like the saint of this movie, and I made this note that Sheldrake is feeling uh, feels off when he's trying to express his position, so it's almost like he's losing his veneer of like. <laughs> of officiousness and rigidity and he's like he's like stumbling and i wondered if that was one of those moments where wilder's trying to get you to technically empathize with this monster and like that doesn't work today at all really (laughs) i would think so yeah like i think it's trying to get him to get people to empathize and be like oh well it's like it's once again these weird moments that he picks to try and make Sheldrake seem not as bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's it, trying to like, it's almost like he's trying to, and I, and I admire this in any director. He is trying to ground it in reality to the point where there's nuance and multiple shades of people. Like not everybody's, you know, painted one particular stroke of color. Mm-hmm. The, the issue with, with the way he does it, as intent is because the film is dealing inherently with the romantic tropes of its era, whether through traditional like romance standards or extramarital affair standards, he's already dating himself doing that. But yeah, I would argue it doesn't take away the complexity, but you do need to know what you're watching when you're watching it and understanding, okay, if I was in 1960 mm-hmm. watching this character, this is an attempt to round him out in a way that is empathetic. But obviously today, especially knowing how the power structures between men and women have operated and how we they need to be worked to be dismantled and evened out for everybody, uh, yeah. that flat out the, the portrayal doesn't work. You're still going to see him as the monster that Wilder's not shying away from. But he is trying to pull you back into something real. Um, yeah. So in a sense, the realism of the apartment doesn't hold up entirely well today uh, from that perspective. 
I'd argue though mm-hmm. it doesn't take away from the scene itself. Like if you took it out of context of the movie, it's a very interesting scene between two real people talking. Um, but knowing what we're gonna find out more about Sheldrake and all this stuff, like it is it's 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 Monsterland starring Fred McMurray as Monster Man. Uh, <laughs> and her breaking down in tears mm-hmm. and then being manipulated back over into his world over this is just crushing. And what's more, it gets even more complicated because, uh-oh, Secretary saw them. Damn. Yeah. Shit just got real. And <laughs> Maybe don't take your new affair to where you used to take your old affair. Yeah, it's almost as if Sheldrake's not even just a monster. He's also an idiot. <laughs> um, and I'd argue he has another idiotic moment coming up later in the movie. <laughs> um, but it but it also lends into even more of his monstrosity. But yes, the the secretary with the with with the rather pronounced glasses uh, that he has had an affair with prior to looks over and goes, "Aha, I see." Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, cut to. Arguably, in this moment, poor Bud Baxter being stood up, <laughs> uh, standing outside of the Music Man alone, the most popular musical in ages, and he's just left outside, de- like this broken, like shell of a man. <laughs> like <laughs> all he's good for is lending out his house to to horny idiots, <laughs> and we then get the scenes inside his new office where all of his, um, uh, with where, where all of his, uh, uh, clients come to congratulate him <laughs> on this performance. And I keep saying the phrase, all that jazz in my life in the next five years, uh, over the last five years. And the moment that I heard him say like, congratulations and all that jazz. And I'm like, he fucking stole my bit. <laughs> well, or did you steal it? Did you steal it from him? I must have stolen it from him, clearly, but it had been a while since I rewatched The Apartment, so this is, must have been one of those few things I took away from The Apartment years ago when I first saw it in film school, just going like, and all that jazz, and all that jazz, and all that jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Dental plan, Lisa needs braces. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they all... They, not, they, they, they congratulate him, but they also fall into the realm of like, well, is The Apartment still available? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah and well it and, was it was a well we got you here now you owe us yeah but, but he hasn't yeah he's been doing the thing that they want more so it's, it's just like now we want more what more time <laughs> in my apartment <laughs> Add, let's, yeah. add, let's let's forget the fact that he added sheldrake onto his little roster or agenda agenda book here <laughs> These guys roster of degenerates. These are like that, that small group of like businessmen of this certain age who clearly don't have an impotence problem. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys, put it in your fucking pants. Stop it. Like it is. And they also treat it like this, this sick little game. (laughs) Like it's very like, like like, scratch my back. I scratch yours, but you're going to scratch my back even more. (laughs) Well, they're all psychopaths. So. They are being portrayed also as like comic relief in a certain respect. Whereas if you watch yeah. these characters in Mad Men, you're like, you fucking monsters. <laughs> like, well, it, I think I think if the apartment were made during today's time, oh, you yeah. basically have you basically have Mad Men. Yeah, 
Mad Men is the long form version of the apartment. <laughs> mm, close to yeah. Um. So uh, McMurray comes back to give back the keys, obtaining the he's he's getting his own copy made essentially, and yes, sh- he's obtained the level of second key master, my friend. Like <laughs> he's just waiting for the gatekeeper to let Zool out. <laughs> like <laughs> it's Gozer. It's Zool Gozer. is. Zool is the uh, oh yeah Z- um, key master. No, Zool is the key master. Yes, that's right. So yeah, they're waiting to let out Gozer. I actually not yeah. want Fred McMurray and Ghostbusters playing the Rick Moranis character. <laughs> um, but uh, no, he he gets the copy of the key. And what's more, when Baxter cleaned up his apartment the night before, he found the makeup case that Kubelik mm-hmm. left behind, and the glass was the broken. correct uh, compact. The cracked compact, yes, because she will, because it's, we'll find it. There's a beautiful line coming up about it. Um, but he says like it's it was broken. Sorry, you fr- sorry, you froze for a second. You froze for a second. So oh, sorry. I was gonna say we're saying. we're gonna get to a line about the compact that is, yeah, fucking heartbreaking. Um, but he's just like, here, here's your compact. I didn't touch it. I didn't touch it. And he's, and he he looks and sees that it's cracked. He's like, it was already cracked when I got it. It's like, well, she threw it at me. Yeah. Well, you know. Eventually, they think that they seem to think that they can just get you to leave their wives. How unreasonable of them! <laughs> I'm like, especially when you said that you were going through the divorce proceedings. Yeah, exactly. Prick. He's playing that. Um, he's now doing what Barbara Stanwyck had to do in Dumb Indemnity was his acting on top of acting. <laughs> he's having to play those layers upon layers upon layers, like shit upon shit, <laughs> to create this. Mm-hmm absolute diabolical demon (laughs) and um you know what there's a line that i will never forget in this movie somebody watch my line there's a swinging party on the ninth floor (laughs) we are whisked away to this christmas party adam (laughs) it's just out of control there's nothing but hr violations left and right this is like a 2021 taboo (laughs) like a hands down like the amount of for fraternizing and just flat out like casual don't give a fuck mm-hmm. hooking up on the floors or on the on the walls like it is it's it's out of control like this is a billy wilder just going like what if i shot an office orgy that that would be fucking beautiful exemplify the the voraciousness of these fucking idiots <laughs> and in that party we see Baxter kind of kicking back, relaxing, going up to leading Kublik through the party. And the dots are connected in a, in, well, in two ways. First of all, Baxter leaves uh, Kublik for a second. And that's when mm-hmm. Kublik talks to the secretary. And the secretary un- uh, unveils the fact that he, she had an affair with him and, and how Sheldrake is basically full of shit. And yeah. there is an element where Fran starts to feel like she's the bad guy. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch the performance and how she's trying to process it mentally. Like I, just, I think, I think she feels like the bad guy more in the way of she feels used and stupid. Yeah. 
Like, I think it's more that than like, oh, I'm this terrible person for doing this thing. It's more of a, I'm being used and I can't believe I'm so dumb for uh, thinking, you know. And and that comes at the beh- and that comes from the men in her life deflecting the blame onto her in many ways, like guilt tripping her to to fucking high heaven. And we get this scene where, in a normal comedy, Jack Lemon putting on a junior executive hat might be hilarious, but instead it's fucking sad. sad. <laughs> it's sad as shit. This is the Gil character if he's trying to have a party at this in the Simpsons world. Like this is depressing as shit. <laughs> well, I think here we go. Extended Billy Wilder, Fred McMurray, Jack Lemon Universe. CC Baxter after quitting, spoiler alert. Um after quitting, you know, he and he moves out of New York. He realizes can't just I can't cut it in the big city. Just can't. And he moves to places, you know, all over, um, trying to make his way. And then he's back in the sales game, selling real estate. Oh, Gil, you had it. You had it big in New York City, and now you're here in Springfield. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could buy that one because we have to first turn him into a cartoon. <laughs> No, from Glengarry Glen. Oh, Glen Glen Glengarry Glen Ross. Okay, cool. Right on. I thought I I mentioned Gil earlier, so I thought we were on the Gil track. Um, well, no, Gil is Gil is modeled. Yeah, yeah, Gil, yeah. Gil is modeled after Glengarry Glen Ross. Jack Lemmon's character. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could buy that. I could buy that because, especially given like Lemon's age in the film and whatnot, that that certainly seems like the good trajectory point for him. Um, because if you look at it once again, um. Because he mo- think of it, he moves out of his New York apartment. He can't make it in the city, but he sticks around for a while, forced to live with his slob of a friend. Yeah, there we go. And then his slob goes, of a friend. You know, oh, his slob of a friend, me. <laughs> but we realized we'd rather then, be friends. <laughs> and then it's just all downhill, and he ends up in the real estate game, trying to sell real estate. I don't understand how he became too tight wound over time. He used to be a fun guy who put on weird fucking hats in front of depressed women. I don't get it. I don't get why Felix fucked himself over. (laughs) I, I, I buy this. I buy this mainly because you connected the odd couple into it. (laughs) That was the nice gap in between here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, now, the line came up, comes up in this moment when he's trying on the hat and she's like, it looks good, etc." And she hands, she hands him the, the compact mirror to get a look at himself. Mm-hmm. And he puts the pieces together like shit. <laughs> uh, well, it's also the classic movie trope of he sees himself in the mirror that is cracked, meaning mm-hmm. he is a broken person. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's a, he's got dual, he's got a dual duality to him. Maybe. There we go. Thank you. Um, and he hands it back going like, I didn't see nothing (laughs) or, and by that, I mean, I don't, I, 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 I am not aware that you are fucking in my apartment with Sheldrake. 
and mm-hmm. he hands her the combat pack and he says that he, he he acknowledges that it's broken and she says the line the mirror makes me look the way i feel and that's broken. why she keeps it broken yeah god fucking Deep. damn it fran leave <laughs> yeah get out <laughs> well she does yeah she does she does she does yes i i'm just it's just you you want to you want to shake the television and just go run Shirley run please. <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's just ah oh, it's so heartbreaking and he continues to be forward in spite of clearly seeing she is in a depressed state and it's like bud shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. You it's need to stop. <laughs> one of the other things that just has I, I think the Jack Lennon character, I would say, overall, does not age well. No, not overall. Like, the Baxter character does not age well at all. Just like you said, how forward he is with her. Um, and then trying to cover for Sheldrake. Um, I think he is just, I think, it, it, I mean, I, this is not an excuse, but it does play into the cluelessness and, like, the flat-out not reading a cue that Baxter is set up as a character to be. But that's, again, that's one of the reasons yep. why it doesn't age well is because we as a, we as a people know these cues better. And so even if, even if we learn it over time in our own lives, like we, we know these cues are obvious and he should not be mm-hmm. acting the way he's acting. Um, it doubles down on, I think, my theory that people watching this at the time couldn't have been unaware of Bud being a, 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 a douche. But I think the only difference is they would have seen it as, uh, like what, what would, what would be the phrase like willfully ignorant or like, just like, like just, like like they they would find some way to attach sympathy to bud and i don't yeah f- i i don't think bud is devoid of sympathy but i think that that ratio keeps dwindling with every passing year <laughs> um to the I point would say where so. yeah to the point where your perspective on what the movie is shifts as the years go on because again you're dealing with a movie that is flat out like constructed in its era doesn't make the yeah. movie unwatchable or unbearable and it doesn't make bud bud baxter a a character that's irredeemable per se but it's fucking tough (laughs) it's tough as shit yeah (laughs) um and well because i think i think when they first wrote it they i think wilder and co were thinking that oh yeah well you know he's he's the good guy he's the he's the nice guy yeah, um, the, the the nice guy trope. Yeah, yeah, which starts developing over the course of the '60s into the mid to late 2000s, and has started to be slowly peeled back and stripped away and whatnot. I feel mm-hmm. like the I feel like the Apatow comedies were the last bastion of the nice guy trope and such, um, or like it it being a prominent thing. If you watch Superbad today, like <laughs> Michael Sarah's character mm-hmm. is is in league with just as much of the jackassery as Jonah Hill and Chris Remond Plus in that movie. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't make the movie bad. I still love Superbad, but it, it changes your perspective on it. Or like 
a good example of somebody who took this same mold and shaped it for the modern generation in a certain respect is actually Edgar Wright with Scott Pilgrim because Scott Pilgrim mm. is an asshole throughout the entire movie. And he peels back the layers in a way to reveal that Scott is a person devoid of any self-respect for and thus leading to him to his choices. I don't know if Scott Pilgrim fully holds up even 10 years down the line, but that's an extension of something like the Baxter character. The, the perception of, of that trope and what it actually looks like. And the difference yeah. is Edgar Wright had access to over over $60 million and made it look like a video game, which is fucking cool. And it looks all the bright colors. It's wonderful. Um, uh, which, uh, yeah, anyway. And so we then get the transition of Bud leaving the office and the office is empty. This is that empty office shot that I'm talking about. It looks like a fucking Kafka nice nightmare, just stretching for miles and miles. It never fucking ends. It's depressing. It's mm-hmm. tragic. You do, you do, you do. I think there's empathy for Bud. There's not sympathy there, but I think there is empathy. We've all walked away down that line. Hating corridor. our jobs. Yeah. Hating our jobs. Yeah. Or hating mm-hmm. the situation we're in. Can you empathize with his specifics? No, but you can empathize with the generalized feeling. And Wilder's tapping into the drudgery of office life in a post-war world. This is like the, this is like some of the earliest beginnings of analyzing that in a postmodern way, because from then on, how do we always perceive office jobs as like the drudgery of the office? It's a perception mm-hmm. that carries on through time. And like, well, I could be more than the office. I could be a filmmaker. Or I could be a podcaster. I'm like, oh, shit. And, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, like that idea of what the office is and what it represents working for like a bigger entity than yourself. Um, and we then cut to him at a bar at a dive bar the presumably the same dive bar that the guy who called him earlier in the movie was in and yeah i flat out love the character that he meets at the bar the gal who's who who basically was married who's who's married to a guy who's in prison for being a, in league with the revolutionaries yeah, in cuba a, yeah who is a political prisoner yes exactly i w- i was trying to remember her her name in the movie and her, and the actress who played her and I'm drawing a fucking blank. I don't. I must have not taken notes here. God damn it. Um, um, oh well. He meets he meets a woman. Yeah, he meets a woman who yeah. is over the course of this conversation, which really is like the comedic relief for what we're about to get. Well, I think it also speaks to Jack Lemmon's acting talent to where you make this morose conversation and he just. It, he is completely just one note with his um, voice inflection and they're talking back and forth. And he's just, I think the line that just made me laugh after that, and you just, they're just sitting there moping and he's just like, well, you win some, you lose some. I don't know why <laughs> it made me laugh. It's, it's, well, they're, they're, they're both in a depressed state of sorts. Like it's Hope Holiday is playing it. I fi- I finally found it out. I'm sorry that that took forever, guys. Um, Hope Holiday playing Margie McDougal. Um, it's almost like she. It's almost like this is a character specifically designed to 
remind Baxter that he is a man who can be proactive. I don't know what it does other than provide comedic relief for what we're getting cross cut in between this. And yeah. It's almost like convenient in the sense that it gets him back to the apartment where it needs to go because meanwhile at his apartment, mm-hmm. Sheldrake is basically calling it off with Kubelik because Kubelik confronts him with that knowledge of the secretary from before. And she's not unaware that she's the only person who's been going in this circle with him. And he says a line that just, just like, it's like the biggest fuck you line, fuck you McMurray line ever, which is you were always a good sport. Yeah. Like Jesus Christ. Like at that point, any empathy he is trying to instill in McMurray is gone. Like it's just Mm -hmm. gone. And I'm sure even Wilder recognizes that. And this is where we get the most, this, this flat out Christmas present situation here. Yeah. Let's talk about this for a second. She gets him something that means something to their time together. And mm-hmm. she gets from him. What did she get, Adam? Tell the audience. Hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. And what is like, she, your well, fucking grandkid? <laughs> he gives her a hundred dollars because he made up some sort of excuse of why he couldn't get her anything. But then <laughs> the biggest slap in the face is. He then tells her at the end of it, just being like, oh, I hear they have nice alligator handbags at Bergdorf's. So it's like, so instead of just buying her alligator handbag, you just say, here's a hundred dollars, buy yourself something nice. (laughs) It's the... It's the ultimate scumbag version of, well, I never know what to get my get my friend, so I'll just give him an Amazon gift card. Like <laughs> that that insensitivity to what they've just gone through, yeah. what he's put her through, what she is putting up with. Mm-hmm. He leaves the apartment so that she could just clean herself up and then leave, like follow suit. And she goes into the bathroom and reaches for a bottle of pills. Mm-hmm. And we don't really, see, we don't see her ingesting and we just see her preparing the water. And then we cut back to the goofy moments between, um, uh, Baxter and um, Marjorie's character and when you do the reveal of this moment so they find like Hope Holiday and uh, Jack Lemon get back up to his apartment and you know he's putting on this actually I like this kind of like this element of that Lemon can put into when he puts on like faux confidence <laughs> like yeah. like the, the, the his swagger or his charm is pretty delightful to watch. (laughs) He's just the biggest goofball on the planet at that point. Um, Which, 
when you brought up grumpy old men, I do think of those moments where he is like acting very like, like flat out confident and suave in front of somebody like Aunt Margaret, where it's just like Jack Lemmon had that dorky charm that he could play to his benefit, depending on the situation. What's interesting is how Wilder uses it here. Mm -hmm. Compared to any other time he's ever had to put this off. Here in particular, especially at this time, when he goes in to be like, all right, Mrs. Kublik, get up. Like, you see us, you see that, that charm that you were seeing outside in the living room suddenly devolve into his selfishness because to his mind, he'll never get with Frank Kublik. And now he's taking it out on her. And it is like one of the, it is another fuck you bud moment. Um, until he starts realizing what the hell's going on. And then all of a sudden it turns into the Uma Thurman scene in Pulp Fiction, but from the sixties. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bud doesn't know what to do. First of all, he kicks Marjorie promptly out of the house and she's like, my boyfriend, the revolutionary will be hearing about this. <laughs> no, he won't. Cause he's in jail. Yeah, exactly. But you do feel, I feel bad for her. I'm like, Oh, that poor lady. Like she wanted company and this guy's pushing her out of the house like a jackass. And, he then goes to Dr. Dreyfus and Dr. Dreyfus is, you know, pretty much just mm-hmm. going like, what the, what, what now? <laughs> you make noise in the middle of the night that I can't explain to anybody, least of all myself. And now you're screaming, wanting my, wanting me to come into your apartment when normally you never invite me over period. And of course, being that he's a doctor, he pulls up his Hippocratic pants and, um, uh, gets to work on saving Fran's life. Another hero of this movie is Dr. Dreyfus. <laughs> yeah. Objectively a hero in the movie. Um, the moral compass, if you will. Yes, exactly. And by the way, Jack Lemon takes too long to listen to Dr. Dreyfus's words. <laughs> too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he does respond like what I what I find interesting is is that there is a line in that moment in the bed where he discovers her where the comedy immediately delves starts delving eventually into flat out this is serious mode and the transition is pretty flaw- seamless like it's a natural transition that moved from point A to point B gracefully doesn't feel yeah. abrupt um and you know, he starts, you know, he's basically getting those things pumped out of her stomach and then getting like getting her pumped up with tons of instant coffee to make sure that she stays awake um, because he doesn't want her going to sleep. And Lemon gives this cock and bull story about who she is and mm-hmm. that she she had they had had a fight that she she had he had broken up with her and that she had tried to kill herself while he brought another woman into the apartment which is going back to elements of the story that IAL Diamond's friend had um mm-hmm. so the the reality of the situation feels real honestly is because IAL Diamond is able to bring something real into this world and from there, we basically get two things. We get Kubalek being revived, and we get Dreyfus going, what the fuck is your problem, Baxter? The holy hell am I doing here? 
Now I've got to cover up my wife. Oh, and you want me to not tell anybody, like the police, what's going on, even though I legally have to make a report. <laughs> uh, it, it it does show that like the amount of desperation that Baxter is going to to keep things afloat with his business yeah. life and his quote-unquote love life and his home life. He's literally trying to juggle three balls in the air that aren't coalescing in any shape or form that a juggler would want. <laughs> Which kind of then informs you of like, well, maybe Baxter's not the best of Now, here's people. here's a question that I have before we get to this back half of the movie because it, we're, we're, it actually moves along quicker than even this. Like, this has all been the setup to... yeah. The theme of this movie being the apartment is actually like it's twofold. It's one, it's the apartment people are using. The other one is that like there is there is something that actually blossoms in the apartment for Baxter himself. Yeah. Is Bud redeemed in this movie? <laughs> because I feel that all of his foibles and his jackassery are stripped away by Wilder. It's not perfect, but I do see it there. I would say he's not redeemed. I don't know how you can be redeemed by doing just the simplest of things okay that's Makes totally sense. fair yeah no that's totally it's fair. like it's like yeah he gives back the key okay yeah he did the basic of what he should have done i think it's to redeem oneself you then have to kind of go on make some sort of penance um i mean we're not talking like herculean 10 trials no, um, no, you're yeah. right. No, and you're right. And like he's not he's but not making he's he not puts yeah. him I would say he puts himself on the road to redemption. Okay. That's a that's a good um, way to put it. But it's also serving like the classic Hollywood, you know, three act structure where it's like characters one way, they battle hard to stay that way, but then they have some sort of dark night of the soul, which then they have some sort of character arc, which then forces the change. Yeah. Screenwriting 101 for you kids. Yes, exactly. Be sure to tune in for more of Dr. Jewel's screenwriting secrets. Yes. <laughs> brought, to you by Sid, brought to you by Sid Field. That's, by the way, I'm glad that I made you a doctor here today. <laughs> Thank um, you. Um, uh, and no, you're, I agree. Because like, I mean, especially when you watch it by the very end, He's on a road to being a better person. I what I guess what I would look at is that like I don't think he's redeemed by frame end. I think he, I think he is though stripped back as a character. And yeah. the ability to understand where he comes from without condoning it is intriguing considering the interactions he then has with Kubelik in the apartment along with everybody mm. else really whether it be the people who were using his apartment or Sheldrake himself or Kubelik's brother-in-law, who we'll get to in a minute. Because, but the recovery occurs and she's still sleeping it off and he phones Sheldrake to inform him of what's gone on. Meanwhile, Sheldrake's slab dab in the middle of a Disney Christmas movie. (laughs) Uh, True. And he gets the call. And suddenly his his wonderful world of Disney is interrupted by a dark cloud of Wilder Wilder's wild ride because <laughs> he's suddenly realizing like, oh, shit, I'm an asshole. Well, I'm not going to stop being an asshole. Um, 
he's putting up that front for his wife of going like, oh, it's just some guy at the office with a problem. I don't know why they call me on these things. I don't know. Baxter. Baxter. Just tell her it's, it's, it, you, just, you, you just take care of it. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's 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 the it's it's just another double down. It's just another fuck you, Sheldrake. Fuck you, Sheldrake. Hollywood. <laughs> there, yeah. There's no there's no other like there's no other way to put that put this in there. Um, and I, I, I'm just gonna say this out loud for anybody here there who wants to know how I truly feel about Fred McMurray. If I haven't made it fucking clear, Fred McMurray didn't deserve a Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Straight up bottom line. (laughs) Um, and not a lot of people do. And also, and also, by the way, he's fucking illiterate. He doesn't know what the word propagate means (laughs) in that piece of dialogue. I'm like, (laughs) how do you get into business? Blame him. No, no, I can't. Well, if we are going with your theory, he's Walter Neff, just roundabout insurance agent. He may not have had vocab like diction in his back pocket as something to work with. Sure, he knows how to use a dictaphone because he uses it yeah. to give his confession in Double Indemnity, but he doesn't have diction. Mm-hmm. Um, and him pushing it off on Baxter, I think, is where in the idealization of what Wilder wants, and I would argue he succeeds in, at this point, if you're going to find a sympathetic character in the male world, it's going to be Baxter, because that's really your only fucking option. (laughs) Uh, And it's exemplified by Sheldrake pushing this all on him. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, again, this doesn't doesn't exonerate (laughs) Bud. He's... I think, but but here's the thing. This is more of like he's just doing what needs to be done to be a good company man. Yes, and he doesn't. He's still not learning to separate out what's important. Correct. He he hasn't separated out the schmuck from the mensch yet. The the thing that Dreyfus wants him to fucking do, um, and so it goes into a con- he he starts getting in uh, communicating with Fran. Mm-hmm. Fran is expressing more of her internalized guilt that she feels from this whole situation. We get her backstory about how she came to the city for that fresh start. She wanted to work in the, she went to work in the type. She tried out for the typing pool at this insurance company and couldn't get it. So they put her in the elevator and this is not the first time she's been involved in a situation like this. And she, Expounds something to the effect of like, why do I keep falling for the wrong man and stuff like that? And mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking. It's 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 just it's it's ghastly to watch that she's been put in this position. And then the remainder of their time together at this apartment becomes like this getting to know you actually and not getting to know you from the elevator. The one thing that I like about what this moment, these moments do is that the the elevator would be your meet cute, right? Like, ideally, yeah. in a rom-com. This is mm-hmm. Wilder deconstructing the meet cute. Arguably. Well, I mean... I mean, you could say that now with revisionist glasses on, but I don't even really think... 
the meat cute had a term like I don't even think that term was coined back in 1959, 1960 yet. No, I, I you're right, and I and it's definitely hindsight is 2020. But it's interesting like, I don't how think we can that, look at it that way now. I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, I think the meat cute didn't arrive until like the 1980s with, let's see, I want, I will say when Harry met Sally, but I would say probably something sooner than that. Yeah. But I think that's when you're going to have like this meat cute type of thing. I mean, but so. And also when when it was first, when it was first coined. Yeah. Cause meat cute is much more of a postmodern term. It's not, it's not existing in this particular area and time yet, especially in film. Um, yeah. But the way you look at it from the way it's framed today, especially, that's where I'm going to like, it's interesting how one element should be the meat cute and this element's de- deconstructing the meat cute or the getting to know you phase of this relationship. Because so far the, the story has operated on an, on, in an unorthodox way by traditional standards. And so, mm-hmm an hour and 10 minutes into the movie, we're finally getting like the first date phase of, of their particular romantic relationship. Um, and she even says something to the lines of like, why can't I fall in in love with somebody like you? And it's just like, lady, you have not been watching this man. (laughs) Get out. I don't, yeah, I don't think you want to fall in love with CC Baxter. No, you don't. But, the movie wants us to follow that pattern and let we may have to humor them for a minute because we will be going back to Sheldrake too, who because of how inconvenienced he is by being called at Christmas for his own fuck ups. He, he fires miss Olson, the secretary who he had the yeah. prior affair with for squealing yeah. at the Christmas party. Also, if any, if history has taught us anything, never treat your assistant like shit because it will come back on you tenfold yep there there is like this this element of watching this especially from the modern lens of of just like again i it would be hindsight is 2020 but it is looking into like wilder's not unaware of how hollywood works realistically Mm -hmm. or how the business world works realistically there are times in Golden Age Hollywood where a few directors, and they're not even amongst my favorite rewatchable directors, where, I mean, Wilder's one that I want to start rewatching now, but I didn't grow up with him the way other people did. True. Wilder is among those directors, just from some of the imagery that he presents in his like top-tier work, whether it be Sunset Boulevard or Double Indemnity or this, he extrapolates power structures. Now he's doing it at a base level with this, but he's showing through the most to my, to my mind the most like obvious lens in a way that I don't feel had been the same in other films about mm-hmm. what Sheldrake does coming back to bite him like it shows that internalized abuse structure that falls within office culture or any kind of work environment. Um is it, I don't think it's like groundbreaking per se, but it is like, it's interesting to see this early on as opposed to having respect for the boss at all times. 
I want to pitch this as like, I almost want to pitch somebody to this of just like, do you want a comedy that has the realism that a noir can possess? If so, this is your movie because that's what Mm. it feels like at times. It feels like there are certain plot beats or character or character actions that resemble a noir at times. Um, Yeah. Albeit vaguely, but like, this is a clear example of like, well, you'll, you'll, you'll pay for that boss man. And then that's when something seedier happens in a noir. She gets a gun and bang. But <laughs> here, here it's let's call up the misses. <laughs> and well, I mean, in a noir, it's Shirley McLean killing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a noir, it's Shirley McLean killing him in this. It's the secretary who's, who's been fired going like, why don't I have one last laugh before I go by calling up the wife here? then, <laughs> Yeah. Meanwhile, McLean's uh, having uh, like kind of just occupying herself around the apartment, and Baxter thinks at one point that she's trying to kill herself because the the oven door the the oven is left open, and the gas is going <laughs> yeah. because she's unaware that it's uh you have to light the grill. It's not a mm-hmm. it's not an electric oven, and. They then talk about, like, they then reveal that he is in such a state of bachelorhood that he strains spaghetti through a tennis racket. Which, first of all, unlike The Odd Couple, it is spaghetti and it is not linguine. But second of all, um, that the, um, this stuff to me kind of reveals that you get, like, this desperation of him as a person with this element. But especially Mm -hmm. how we've talked about this, like, it 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 feels more hollow than the odd couple at times with the way it's presented just because of what we're seeing but again i don't know if that's the difference between the realism and the reality but well i, I think it's both hollow and sad yeah because it's just like it's hollow that he is trying to do what he's doing and he's doing it for the wrong reasons like a thousand percent and it's sad that he's doing it for these reasons that it's that he's just such a schmuck um, or yeah. bring it back to our good fellas, such a, a schnook. Yeah. Um, that he just, it's like, yeah, he makes pasta and he uses a fucking tennis racket to strain it. He can't even buy a strainer. Really? Yeah. Um, and then it only furthers that he's such a fucking loser when he tells the story about his best friend marrying his, I believe it's his high school crush. And oh, he's like, the oh, gun I, story. <laughs> I went to, I went to kill myself because my best friend married. And it's like, they still send me a fruitcake. And it's like, the story, the story goes is that he was in love with his best friend's girl and they were going to get married and he couldn't take it anymore. And he was going to go shoot himself, but he, but he panicked <laughs> And accidentally yeah. shot his leg, <laughs> like something. Yeah, yeah. And and it. Here's the thing. I know we've talked about the the gravity of Bed, Bud Baxter as a character and how you perceive him, and like, is he a good guy or is he not? Yeah, that is a damn smart piece of writing in many respects to get you on his side. Yes, from not just from the sympathy point, but also. It's just being like, oh, he can never catch a break with the ladies. And they're playing the opposite end 
mm-hmm. of the sincerity that they alluded to with McLean's portrayal. Her yeah. story is primarily treated as serious. His is treated as tragic comedy. <laughs> and I find it interesting how the way they truly connect is through the fact that they've both been at these bitter ends of their life, uh, like end of their rope type of feelings. And there's something honest about the way he tells his suicide attempt story to mm. even out her sadness. Well, I think he's saying it. Yeah. I think, it's, I don't know if he's saying it to empathize, but like, I don't know. I feel like it is to like, to like, I feel like it's almost there to be like, just like, you're not alone in that. Yeah. But now, in terms of when I say honest, does that mean it like holds up today? I don't know. Like, no. suicide humor is, is like is fucking like it's super prominent in the '40s, '50s, and '60s in a lot of media that I've consumed within it. And watching people take suicide as such a frivolous, over dramatic thing when in fact it's an actual issue. But I do find it interesting the way it's portrayed and how it's supposed to bring them closer together. Really. Um, mm-hmm. And what's more, we're going to get to uh, the uh, to the ult- the the really the only fight scene in this movie. That's a, there's only one fight scene in this movie, Adam. Uh, <laughs> does take place in the apartment, though. <laughs> I don't know why I was sure. expecting a fight scene. To <laughs> uh, it wasn't but, in the apartment. No, if, if it wasn't in the apartment, then I'd be like, "Hey, I've been had." <laughs> um, yeah. But no, yeah, we get um, Kubelik's brother-in-law pays a visit to the insurance offices. And at this point, when Kubelik's brother-in-law, who Kubelik lives with, her, his, yeah. her sister and, his bro- and her brother-in-law, he comes into the office. The people in the office are the people that Bud has been lending out his apartment to. And they have had it because they haven't been able to get into their fuck apartment for days. <laughs> yeah. And the brother-in-law comes in and asks, he's looking for Baxter. And he's just like... Well, shouldn't we tell them, boys? I don't know. Do you think we should tell them about our old friend Bud and his apartment? Sell them out. Sell them out. Because it's all for them, it's all about what has he done for us lately. Mm-hmm. Which could be a commentary on the way Hollywood operates even to this day. Woo! Uh, but um but I mean like if anything, like it's like it's like the vaguest of <laughs> Vegas the proclamations on that front like I'm stretching and when I think about that but yeah uh, Wilder was known to comment on Hollywood it wasn't out of his when we talked about double indemnity we talked about the many different things he had to say about not just the industry but his collaborators <laughs> um yeah uh so he goes the brother-in-law goes to the apartment and confronts Bud and yeah he basically freaks the shit out of Bud and kicks him around and it gets it gives me this one thing of like at long last after an entire movie of regardless of whatever sympathy or empathy or whatever the I'm supposed to have with Bud Baxter which I do have elements of that swirl around in this complicated manner that you have to suss out contextually Mm-hmm. I have been waiting for a karmic punch to hit him in the face. <laughs> and he gets it, Adam. <laughs> it's almost as if he's being, if that's 
reality coming. Yep. Coming Smacking them around. Mm-hmm. Reality giving him the check that he needs. So, I mean, there's not much to say about that. The, there, the, there, not, there isn't much apart from the fact that it gets Fran out of the apartment. Like Fran leaves the apartment at that point. And I would say, yeah, I would say the biggest thing to talk about now, like if we could skip forward just to the ending itself. Yeah. I mean, oh, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's where a lot of the big things to talk about are is with that ending. Yeah, we should first establish that Sheldrake has indeed been dumped by his wife. Yes. And that he's now ready to take Fran off his hands. To yes. which, to which, I'm sorry, I just marvel at the audacity of... of I, McMurray's performance in here is really brilliant if his goal is to play a monster because he plays these lines off of just like, yeah, I'll just take her off. He's like, what the fuck? Well, if you think about it, they both have the same idea, so they're just as equally bad. Oh yeah, you know, no, because, abso- absolutely. <laughs> because you see, uh, Baxter is practicing in his office. He's like, oh, he says that exact word, that exact phrase. Yep. Um, I'm willing to. I'll be willing to take Miss Gubelik off your hands for you. Yep. And treating her like a thing, like yep. a possession. Which is which is a which is a major issue with how the ending can be perceived, and how mm-hmm. these moments are perceived. Because the best character in the movie, the the goodest character of the movie, is laid in as an object and not as a person. A person, a person by the end of the film. Yeah. So, what I find interesting about that is that, given the amount of time we had with her in between. The ending still needs to rely on the trope that she is an object of desire and not a person. And the yeah. only thing that subverts it is her decision to come back to the apartment at the end of the movie. And I think she's even treated like an object then when she comes back to yeah. the apartment. She is. Yeah, but that but to my mind Wilder's trying to subvert that, but it's not working. Because he's trying to like make it her choice, but it's almost like, but no, like you, you're, you're, it's, you're literally dealing with that whole argument of lesser of two evils, which is, you know, this phraseology mm-hmm. that I think if, if, if Wilder is in tune with the fact that Baxter is the asshole that he is, that's the argument he's making in the director's chair, which is like, uh, Fran, you're going to be going off with the lesser of two evils here because it's either this or hang out with this unre- unreliable asshole on New Year's Eve who's going to break your heart anyway. Um, yeah. And you've or- and and to his mind he's going to he's gonna, he would be pitching it as like you say earlier in the script why can't I fall in love with a guy like you? Well now you can. But it's again, we're dealing with the way this film wants to present itself from the absolute modern most modern it can versus mm-hmm. how we receive it today because it is a product of its time. And so the first of all, I do like from from the standpoint of like the way he directs Baxter leaving Sheldrake's leaving the insurance company. I love the uh, the the false (laughs) the 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 false alarm that he gives where it's almost like he's going to go back into the office and Sheldrake's going to 
uh, take the apartment and he's just like, no, these are the keys to the washroom. I quit. <laughs> like, yeah, that that's a good fucking that's that's a solid piece of direction by by Wilder. I fucking love it. Um, but then again, we get this scene at the New Year's nightclub. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. Baxter's packing up to leave the apartment and Dr. Uh, <laughs> and Dr. Dreyfus comes in and just goes and tells him like, well, you learned your lesson. And I think mm-hmm. from from the perspective of the time he has, he's become a mensch. But in the grander, complicated scheme of things, no. No. Like he's 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 on the start of a path, as you alluded to earlier, but he's not Yeah. Yeah. Um but we get a moment that has been regarded as one of the most famous moments of this movie. In fact, the final line of this movie is uh amongst the contention of AFI top 100 lines and shut up and deal yep exactly he goes now my back question to, is this yeah do do you think that's them getting together or is she just like mm, nah nah brah we're just here playing cards hmm well can I tell you my answer based on what I know of the way music works? Because so first of all, the score in this movie is pretty damn masterful. Although there are some moments with the suicidal moments where I'm like, this is maybe a little too over heightened, but okay. It's, it's Uh the sixties. It's early 60. I'll buy it. The music to me indicates a happy ending. They get together. Mm Hmm. Now, do I need to take that at face value? No. <laughs> and I could interpret it as shut up and deal. Like you said, I love you so much. Let's just let's just stop this fucking stupid roller coaster and play gin rummy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that that is a that is another great way to interpret it. If I had to pick a final answer, I would say it's intended to be they live happily ever after because for all the subversion that this movie takes with the genre of a romantic comedy or even just a romantic story period, it's still bound by the traditions of what a Hollywood film of this era can do. And Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not a bad thing to my mind, but given what we've talked about with the apartment and how the character of Bud, the character of, uh, of Sheldrake the character of virtually every male in this movie, apart from Dr. Dreyfus, mm-hmm. indicates that like this movie was meant for the time that it was made. It had a shelf life of being of of being acceptable from all those characteristics we described, I would say maybe into the nineties or maybe into the two thousands. I don't know what the acceptability level is for, like the span of it. But there, we are at a point right now where everything that we've seen out of Bud, it's complicated and at times very impossible to call him a traditional romantic comedy leading man in a respect that feels that it's traversed and broken, is transgressive and broke new ground. It's transgressive yeah. when it comes out. And then it leads the way for other films within the 70s and the 80s and the 90s especially 
to pick up that mantle and run with it to whatever point we're at right now, which arguably isn't mm-hmm. any better. I would say, to push back, I would say they don't end up together, and that's her saying, yeah, no, I'm done. Like, I'm here as a friend, and we're here to play cards. Yeah. Because he make, cause Billy Wilder makes her the lead, where it's all about her. Yep. Um, it's just masqueraded that Jack Lemon is lead when he's not. Um, and I think, like you said, it's subversion. Um, a lot of subversion that does not age well, as you can see. Um, but I think it's the beginning. You also have to look at the time. Um, it's the very low beginning of, you know, the boomer generation coming up um, wanting their own views and you do have some you do have the rumblings of female empowerment especially bringing it in at the end of this movie kind of just being like the whole well, I don't need a man to be happy uh kind of thing, but in a very more tactful way. So I have a question for you then, given, by the way, the movie ends a United Artists release. And um, my question to you falls within a, within a question that I spend a lot of time in my life when it comes to dissect, when it came to watching films, forget dissecting Mm -hmm. them, just fucking watching them and not understanding what true agency for a character is, and especially when it comes to agency in female characters. Mm-hmm. Does Fran have agency in this movie? Mm. Because I'd argue if your ending is the one that we are going with, then she does have the agency to make those choices. Um, or at the very least, she learns how to have agency. But I don't know the direct answer because the movie is is f- walking a line between what it's used to and what it's trying to move into, if that makes sense. Which is why it feels as unstable as it does from a modern lens. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And I don't know if that gives Fran the same amount of agency that we would attach to modern female characters today. And also... I ask this question within the within the absolute disclaimer that this is two men having this discussion, <laughs> and our That's point of view, our point of view would not be the most reliable one. I I'm merely looking at this out of genuine curiosity. From I, I will flat out tell people right now, Adam is one of the most progressive people I know, and is much more in tuned with how a script works than most of the people who ever try to write a script. So that's why I would ask well, something like this. Well, that's very kind, but still, I'm. And while I find myself to be a progressive, I still have a lot to learn. And yes, I do. I think I do agree with you that two, two white men, uh, talking about <laughs> talking it's complicated about and I'm sorry. If, yeah, it's like we should. We are definitely not the people to, um, be saying what should and shouldn't. What shouldn't shouldn't work? We need, you know, obviously yeah, different absolutely. perspective, different fresh eyes. I think 
we should talk about the idea of how what this has done and what this hasn't done in terms, like we said many times, this has not, like, while it's a good movie, it still, it definitely hasn't aged the best. Mm -hmm. There are definitely a lot of things that are problematic. But I think what it did do right in a sense is having a strong female lead or the start the start of what it can become yeah yeah Yeah. Um, correct yeah i i have this i have this that question to me ties into like how we'll ultimately like wrap up our thoughts on the film because i think that the way you view this film for better or for worse determines the way you still in some ways view the romantic comedy as a genre period um because arguably since this film it's taken many different shapes and forms whether that be dramedy or flat out high concept high budget rom-coms like the bounty hunter or like the ugly truth Mm -hmm. or whatever where you have a lot of tropes still being adhered to from as far back as the 30s and the 40s and it's also with a disclaimer it's not a it's not a bad thing to enjoy this movie It, it just really is something where Context of this sort, I think, is something that's not as inherently noticeable or recognizable as, say, the context of what we discussed in The Searchers. The Searchers' context needs to be fucking obvious. And yeah. this should be obvious, too. But this one I think goes under a lot the rug. More, there's definitely a lot more subtext with um, this, whereas in The Searchers, you have something that is just flat out racism and then problematic things spawning from The Searchers. I just put it on the Again, screen, Adam. I didn't allude to nothing. <laughs> Eat shit, John Wayne. Um, <laughs> I think this. I think this is a perfect movie that encapsulates the times. Just when I say encapsulate the times, just being like the product of the time, being that it's present day. It's New York. It's white collar um, dominated by white men and this whole, because it's this whole post-war generation that has come back from war and they, this is the first time in pretty much their entire life where they have seen both peace and and prosperity Mm -hmm. um, from the 1950s where it was there was no there. Well, there was Korea. I shouldn't say that. Right, um, but but in but, but in an post- overall sense, yeah. And then prosperity, where the economy is just growing tenfold. I mean, that's mainly because every major competitor was devastated by the war. We were not, so that's a whole different discussion. Yep. Um. So you have this giant you know, prosperity and kind of creating, you know, these men kind of masters of the universe. And I think it's Billy Wilder, A, holding a mirror to it, like you said, in terms of showing these things of like these just skeevy men where it's not just like, okay, these aren't like bad men where they're killing people. No, it's like these are just terrible men taking advantage of a 
another person, but also just taking advantage and treating women like shit. But also, right. once again, it was a sign of the times where it's like, I wouldn't say, well, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at, you know, sign of the times is this is a constant thing happening in the 50s, 60s, so on and so forth. I mean, granted, take that as a grain of salt. I was born in 1986, so I don't fully know what it was like back in 1960. But when you read read things and and share the context of things, you can kind of see it. Um, and I think things like that have kind of carried over, whereas I think Billy Wilder in something like with the apartment for... I'm not even going to say for better, but for worse, um, you can see parts of that play out in a certain dipshits films, uh, Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with, because I, like I said on two podcasts ago, Billy Wilder was the inventor of both the noir genre and the romantic comedy. And you can kind of see like the seeds of the romantic comedy in like seven year itch, some like it hot and the apartment and then how it kind of grew and evolved into this thing, but is still continuously evolving because a lot of the times, you know, romantic comedies are always, you know, about this career driven woman who can't ever find love because she's too career driven and needs to settle down and blah, 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 blah. It's like, shut up. Um, and I think tropes like that, where it's just kind of like always negatively focused on the female that has the problem. Yeah. Um, that it's always on the female that's poor at finding love. Um, right. There's yeah. a, before we go into the overall reception, I'm going to jump a bit ahead to an article from the guardian, um, which wrote about the film last year, June 15th. Um, it says the apartment at 60 is this Billy Wilder's finest film. Mm-hmm. In the course of this article, there are a couple of different things that I want to point out, but here's one paragraph that, uh, that is interesting. Wilder's Wilder is understood as a cynic about human nature based on the greed and the moral corruption on display in films like double indemnity and ACE in the hole. But he has always had a strong affinity for the little guy, and in Bud and Fran, he found the littlest. The Apartment is a romantic comedy where the two leads are kept apart partially by circumstance and partially by mutual understanding that they don't deserve love. It's inconceivable to Bud that a man of his station could attract a woman like Fran. It is inconceivable to Fran that a woman of her station is worthy of kindness and decency. These are not typical rom-com obstacles. These are two psychologically bruised individuals conditioned to believe the key to happiness is as exclusive as the key to the executive washroom. Um, And I would encourage people to read the full article to make your own judgment. But but to me, like what I take away from something like that is that one of the reasons why this film still stands as a, peak of excellence for the genre is because the 
uh, is because the broader elements are at play here in the dissection of the film. We just sat mm-hmm. down for two hours, basically, talking about the plot of the film and really kicking Bud Baxter around and how that character comes off today. If you look at it in the broad spectrum of Fran and Bud as the overall bruised individuals in this star-crossed element, there is something unique to still take from it from a modern perspective. However, the more you dig back with Bud, the harder it is to view it the way it has been sold to you for years, which is a rom-com. But arguably, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is the same for you, when I was told about the apartment initially, I was told flat out it's a dark comedy. Hmm. So Well, I could say I mean, once again, if you look at the times that it was made, um you could view it as a dark comedy because definitely a woman committed committing suicide over a man not loving her, you can see there's some darkness in there. Um, because if this because if this were to happen because if this happened in 1960, uh, probably what would have happened instead of it being like oh just have her get bed rest in reality it would have been like okay we're taking you to a hospital because you're his, you're a hysterical woman and we need to fix you right right absolutely um, there's something that I wanted to put into the ether in the regards of that the the term dark comedy for me yes. for me as it's always stood dark comedy is a realm where unhappiness is the ending and that's the joke um mm. or at least the traditions of a saccharine ending are no are are not existent here by the time the film ends um if you look at it from anywhere from kind heads kind hearts and coronets on down to something like as as tragic comic as something like a Coen Brothers make with a serious man, the ending's not optimistic. So, Adam, I think in the course of kind of talking this out, I might be on your side where the movie might be telling me that it wants um, wants you to get that normal happy ending, but the way it's mm-hmm. filmed, it can operate both ways. And arguably, given what Wilder has in the form of cynicism Mm -hmm. that he's displayed before and will display again as we keep talking about him as a subject, this film almost operates as satire of what that rom-com trope is going to be by the time you get to the end. By the time you get to that final image, it's almost spitting in the face of the wrapped up in a neat little bow ending that you get with some romantic comedies. Um, And I'd argue that it's not the perfect way to view this film. You should still view it with everything we've discussed, but given Billy Wilder's penchant for poking things with a stick at times, Mm -hmm. uh, I'd argue he knew exactly what he was doing in that respect. Not all the pieces work from a modern context, but in that moment and in that time, especially with that particular ending, I'd agree with you that ending is that she's not there to get back together. 
at the very mm-hmm. best, at the very best in Bud's case, it's a, well, let's just play cards and see what happens. At its most reality core, it is leaving on the ending of like, oh my God, look at the bullshit we just went through over the course of two hours. <laughs> like to get to yeah. this particular point where it should be the romantic comedy ending. It's not foolproof. And I and I and you you can definitely tell where other films have probably done it better, but it's interesting the more I'm thinking about that final image and how we've discussed it, the more I realize that like that might be the among the most complicated images in the film. Because because you as the viewer are going to take away from it where you're going to take away from it based on whether it's your experience or your intelligence or your um so it, mm-hmm. whether it's your experience or your thought process or your understanding of how the world works and operates versus like other, uh, other perspectives or people who might be informed in one area versus another. So in a sense, like it's like among the most complicated endings you're going to get out of a movie. It's pretty interesting to consider it from that front. Um, and the guardian had this to say at the end of its article is that, and finally there's Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine, Fran may be more glamorous than lowly Bud, but Lemon and McLean keep them on the same wavelength, courteous and deferential to a fault, yet high-spirited yeah. and silly by nature, trading the sort of elevated banter that tends to separate the couples in old screwball comedies from mere mortals. It's so obvious that the audience that they belong to the, to the audience that they belong together, and so elating when it finally happens, as it should in any good rom-com. But the apartment understands that forces that keep them apart so clearly, and they are as ordinary as clocking into work. So mm-hmm. there's the element of just like even 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 in the year 2020, there is still the perception that these two clearly belong together. And I wonder if that comes from the inherent basic fact that they are damaged people that people view that from as opposed to like dissecting bud the way we have, because from a modern lens and perspective, dissecting Fran doesn't become the same game as dissecting bud because we're from a different element of the looking glass here where we're watching things come to the forefront where we understand that women's side of the story has been untold for decades, if not centuries, if not eons. And So that's that's what's interesting is is that even today we still view it through these traditionalist tropes, and I don't think, I don't think people do it with the intention of being willfully ignorant or even like I, I think they do it because they get a movie that they clearly enjoy and they're watching it from the lens of this is a good rom com, and arguably if you love the apartment unconditionally, this episode of the show may not be for you. And I apologize if you, we wasted your time, but, um, but I don't think we ever threw the movie under the bus necessarily. I think we just pointed out where it is, you know, but I think some of this stuff has to be reckoned with. Um, Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is why I, I believe I stated it in our John Wayne searchers podcast was, um, this is one of the reasons why I just don't like, uh, the the golden this era, while yeah, the, the era yeah, of Hollywood. Well, yeah. there are well, there are um good movies. I think there's still a lot of problematic where it's one of those things where it's like so preoccupied with whether or not you think 
could, you didn't stop and think whether or not you should, or it was just, oh yeah, it's fine. We don't care if we upset, you know, this group of people, whether it's racial or um, based on, you know, gender, yeah. gender or anything like that. Um, or I orientation think, for that matter too. Yeah, exactly. So, right. Which I, and I, I totally understand that. Yeah. I think that's where kind of the biggest problems lie. Right. Uh, with, with everything. That, so, but that was 60, that, that's 60 years later. How would you like to talk about how the film was received in its time? Because. I'm sure it wasn't well received because they're like, what is this elevator girl? What is can I, what what if I told you that the, that the critics were split on this movie at its time, Adam? The yeah. movie, first of all, the box office on this movie is that it doubled its three million dollar budget at the American box office, so it was a good hit. Mm-hmm. Um, time and Newsweek praised it, um, and you know who else praised it? Who? My enemy, Bosley Crowther. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> he called the film gleeful, tender, and even sentimental, and he called Wilder's direction ingenious. Um, wow, sometimes Bosley's right, you know, when he doesn't have his head up his ass. <laughs> and, well, uh, you know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day, right, Adam? <laughs> there you go. That's all you can ask for. <laughs> Bosley Crowther, the, the, the film critic clock. Um, the broken film critic clock. Um, Esquire, um, their critic, uh, Dwight McDonald, gave the film a poor review, though. He called it a paradigm of corny avant-gardism. Ooh. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. What, what, would avant-gardism, wouldn't that point to the fact that it's clearly designed to not fall into corny tropes and cliches? What the fine fuck? Did he just put two words together and thought they sounded good? <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, I mean, it's not that like unknown. And I just ah, that kind of blows my head around. Um, and also, there were other people, uh, like in the Saturday Review, calling it a dirty fairy tale. <laughs> uh, in regards to the controversial natures of the infidelity and adultery. Um, I want that as the tagline for the movie going forward: a dirty fairy tale by Billy Wilder. <laughs> Um, and now here's where we get into how Fred McMurray dealt with the success of this movie, Adam. How so, Zach? Did you, did you know, this is coming from Wikipedia Mm -hmm. based on a source from the, uh, nobody's perfect Billy Wilder, a personal biography. McMurray related that after the film's release, he was accosted by women in the street who berated him for making a dirty, filthy movie, and one of them hit him with her purse. Well, he deserves it. Well, yes, but they weren't weren't hitting him because of his character. They were hitting him because he made the movie. They think Fred... (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean... Now, uh... We uh we we also are dealing with Oscar territory here, um at the 1960 Academy Awards, the 33rd annual Academy Awards, 
the film was I was going to pull this up because I wanted to do a game that we did last time, Adam. Do you recall when we uh, talked about who won over Double Indemnity? No. No. Okay. We did that. Ge- we did a little game there where we talked about who won over Billy Wilder and uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity and played into this game. Now, the film did win Best Picture, Best Director, mm-hmm. Best Story and Screenplay, Best Art Direction. And it lost in Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Cinematography. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the film, uh, and in Best Sound. The film also won for Best Editing. So I'm going to go to the page here, and we're going to go through those categories that they lost. And I want you to tell me if it's bullshit or not. <laughs> okay. All right. So for Best Actor, Jack Lemon obviously nominated for The Apartment. The other nominees are Trevor Howard for Sons and Lovers. Um Lawrence Olivier in uh, The Entertainer. Spencer Tracy in Inherent the Wind. And the winner is Burt Lancaster for Elmer Gantry as Elmer Gantry. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen any of those other than the apartment, so I can't really say. I mean, Burt Lancaster is... Or was a you know a titan? So but, okay, yeah. I, I would say I would have gone with Spencer Tracy for Inherent the Wind before Burt Lancaster, but I haven't seen Elmer Gantry, so I can't comment. Uh, I just Tracy really come in. Did Spencer Tracy come into the movie and say, "Hey, I'm I'm Dick Tracy now. I'm Spencer Tracy." <laughs> no, okay. it's Inherent the Wind. Oh. It's about the Scopes Monkey Trial, Madam. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> don't don't get I'll me wrong. It. That's I'll, a good that's I'll, a good line. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um okay, best actress. Obviously the nominee for the apartment is Shirley MacLaine for uh the apartment. The uh, other nominees are Greer Garson for Sunrise at Campobello as Eleanor Roosevelt. Deborah Kerr okay. for The Sundowners as Ida Carmo- Carmody. Mel- okay. Melina Mercury for the film Never on Sunday as Elia, and the winner is Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8. Um, this is a situation where I've not seen either of them either, so I'm going to just say Shirley MacLaine flat out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor's a legend. She was going to get an Oscar. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, blah, best, blah, 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 blah. Um, best Supporting Actor. We have Peter Ustinov winning it for Spartacus as... Bata- <laughs> Batiatus. Um, I can't. I have not seen Spartacus in a while, so I don't remember the names of those guys. I just remember the name Spartacus. But Peter Ustinov is in Spartacus. Okay. He wins. Um, we have Peter Falk for Murder Incorporated as Abe Kid Twist Relis. We have Jack Crucian for The Apartment as Doctor Dreyfus. Salminio for the movie Exodus. Uh, Sal Mineo, also known for West Side Story, and also for being the uh, one-third of the apes that escaped the Planet of the Apes in Escape from Planet of the Apes. Uh, ah. And then Chill Willis for the Alamo as Beekeeper. <laughs> huh. You know, I mean, Spartacus I is Spartacus pretty... in a very long time, so I'll give it to I'd say, all right, sure, that tracks. Yeah, give it, get, get, throw it a bone at least. Um, now, cinematography might be a little bit more up our sleeve here in regards to who yeah. should have won and who should have not won. 
Um, best cinematography, black and white. At this point, the uh, cinematography had indeed been divided up. We have, as the winner, Sons and Lovers, Freddie Francis, a very good cinematographer, Freddie Francis, who also shot, amongst other films, The Elephant Man and Cape Fear. And uh, the mm-hmm. other nominees are The Facts of the Wind, uh, The Facts of Life, sorry, by Charles Lang, Inherit the Wind, Ernest Laszlo, another talented DP, Psycho, okay. John L. Russell, and then The Apartment, Joseph Lachelle. This is tough for me because you have one of my favorite movies of all time competing with our movie of today and both look beautiful in black and white. But I'm going to give it to The Apartment. (laughs) You'd give it to Psycho, really? Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing where I actually, you know what? I would give it to Psycho based solely out of the fact of the way Russell utilizes crush blacks and shadows outside of Norman Bates's place and in the cellar in the finale and the way he lights him in the asylum at the end. It is pretty fucking like striking the apartments going for a more subtle affair. I don't think the apartment was ever going to win because it's a much more subtle um, approach to black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have best sound, which I mean, I mean you have the Alamo Cimarron, Pepe, and Sunrise at Campobello. The Alamo seems like the obvious winner here. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. It's a Western movie. It's going to do it. Because what? Uh, the Apartment won for what again? It won for Good. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Story and Screenplay, Best Art Direction, which it dead, definitely deserved, and then Best Film Editing. Yeah. It won what it needed to. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. And um, now the film has uh, been ranked among the AFI, several AFI lists. Uh, 100 Years, 100 Movies at number 93. 100 Years, 100 Laughs at number 20. 100 Years, 100 Passions at number 62. Number 80 on the 10th anniversary edition of 100 Years. And 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes. It is nominated for Shut Up and Deal. Uh, And legacy of this film it is uh it was selected for the national film registry in 1994 uh the sight and sound poll in 2002 named it the 14th greatest film of all time tied with la dolce vita and in 2012 the poll conducted by the same magazine voted it the 44th greatest film of all time it was included with the new york times guide to the best 1000 movies ever made in 2002 and in 2006 premiere voted this film as one of the 50 greatest comedies of all time the WGA has ranked this film's screenplay as the 15th greatest ever. And in 2015, it received the BBC's 100 Greatest American Film List selection at number 24. The What's film its that's Rotten still, Tomatoes score? It's Rotten Tomatoes score. Are you ready for this? Yeah. 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus yeah. is director Billy Wilder's customary cynicism is leavened here by tender humor, romance, and genuine pathos. I'd agree. I, I, I'd agree. It's 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 definitely desired to be nuanced and com- desiring to be nuanced and complicated, and it does succeed in certain elements. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, so Adam. We've talked about a good chunk of time for the the apartment. We've talked about a lot of complicated issues. Uh, The last question that I have out of you is, when it comes to this film, how do you sell this film to people? And what's more, 
How do you see it in the grand scheme of romantic comedies at large? Um, I mean, I think in terms of grand schemes of romantic comedies, I think you can definitely put it in, as one of the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A phrase. The you put it in the grand scheme of things as I'm not going to say pioneer, but definitely one that really laid the groundwork for how romantic comedies are done in terms of tropes, um, in terms of character and things like that. Now, the way to sell it is you sell it on a writing basis. Be like, this is what good writers do. Cause I remember in one of my classes, um, that's how it was sold to me. Like this is this is what a good writer does, and they used the specific encounter between Baxter and uh, Miss Kublik. Their first interaction when he asks her on a date, and she's like, "Sure, I just have to tell someone off." Da 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 da, and it's like surprise, it's Sheldrake, and then still unbeknownst to him, and then with the cracked mirror. Um, so I think in terms of that is how you sell it. Now, I think as it continues to say the searchers has, but there are definite aspects that have not, like I've said over and over, there are definite aspects that have just not aged well um, at all. Right. Um, Just with it being, you know, from some of the dialogue to just how Miss Gublik is treated, so on and so forth, and then how they try and redeem uh, Sheldrake to be like, yeah, he's bad, but he's not that bad. And yeah, same they, thing they, with Baxter. The, the, the slight empathy that they do, and then Baxter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I think so, there are definite parts that just haven't aged well, just especially, I would say the biggest piece that has not aged well is in the apartment when he first, when Baxter first calls Sheldrake and he's like, Hey, you know, this is that. And just kind of breaks it down. And then he breaks it down to her. It's like, Oh no, we can't, you can't call anyone. Cause that'll embarrass him. And then also get me fired and destroy my way up the corporate ladder. Right. Um, I think that whole like scene just, it just hasn't aged much because you're just kind of like, ooh, he's kind of scuzzy too, and um, and things like that. And then also just some of the other chauvinistic things that you could never get away with, i.e., you know, doing a can can on a desk at the Christmas party, or you know, grabbing the elevator girls. Oh, grabbing yeah. the elevator oh. girls back. Oh God, yeah. And to, and to be cl- um, and to be clear, like there's one that that the there was a can can dance for one of them, and then there's another one that was a flat out strip tease, which is yeah, <laughs> which that exactly. yeah, that's that's craziness. <laughs> so there are definite things like that that just haven't aged well, and you're just like, well, um, yeah. So I think there will be there will be I'm not going to say a reckoning. But there will be times where probably the apartment is held to account to be like, mm, there's definite some, there are some great issues that need to be addressed here. Right. Um, and 
I would ask you this. Does it take away your enjoyment to watch the film going forward? Having addressed them out front like this, even though you've already known of them. I wouldn't say it takes away the enjoyment, but it does kind of put things in perspective. Mm-hmm. For sure. But you could probably still kick back to this movie and, and as we've discussed before, appreciate it on the merits of which it was created and what it does do while taking into account what we have in front of us. Mm, I think so. But also at the same time, it's like, I do enjoy this movie, but it's not going to be one where it's like, oh, I've got to watch this. You know what? I'm feeling in a fun rom-com way. I'm going to watch The Apartment. Or well, Yeah, not like, a fun rom-com way. You're, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> okay, true. Fair point. Touche. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's not going to be one of those where it's just like, let's see, what should I watch today? To just, oh, yeah, bang. I'm going to grab this and watch this. Um, so yeah, I think... But yes, it is something where I could grab it and then still somewhat enjoy it and not I wouldn't look past the problems but it's definitely something like oh yeah this isn't great this isn't great but still watch it with the eye of troublesome worry yeah exactly you can you can watch it through the cinematic eye but you are aware of the other eye you've got to be watching it through at the simultaneous time there's not yeah there's not there's not a way to only watch one eye versus the other. There is there is a to my mind there's a confluence of the two ways you view the film. And I do think that like I don't the wonderful thing about the apartment to me is is that nobody sees this as like a you know uh to my mind I don't think anybody I've ever heard anybody speak to the fact that it's like the you know a go-to rom-com feel feel good movie. Every, anybody you talk to who's seen it is fully aware of what the film is mm-hmm. and what it deals with. So they understand that not only are they not in for a happy-go-lucky time, but they are in for a complicated time. Exactly. And I do think that, you know, um, I, w- I want to address two elements of this. Because first of all, this is a movie that I want to keep going back to from the grand scheme of how it's constructed and what Wilder is doing to put up that mirror up to the society that he has in his contemporaneous zone. Um, if the, mm-hmm. if, when we discussed earlier on in the film about the fact that he's making this film of the moment to capture the feelings of that moment and the realities of that moment, the fact that he falters from the modern perspective is as again, of that phrase of the times yeah. And there's always the argument that I will always point out is that just because you say of the times doesn't mean people weren't aware that these things were wrong, too. Um, that extends into a greater amount of issues regarding the world. In the case of the, yeah. in the within the realm of the apartment, I think what's interesting is that it is a good example of how virtually every romantic comedy ever made is solely of its time. There are very few films in this genre that are not of their time because romantic trends and understandings of relationship dynamics and understanding gender disparity affect the way these films are written and presented over time. And that's good because it means things evolve over time. If you look at the apartment compared to say a screwball comedy, you are you are looking at the apartment being a good evolutionary step forward. But if you look at it at 
with anything else from the modern contemporary realm today, you're going to definitely see where the problem lies. And I do ultimately think that that lies into the fact that romantic comedies, for the most part, are a genre that are exclusively of their time. They have a hard time transcending the time that they existed in. Um, Mm -hmm. I use... I use uh, Chasing Amy as a good example for this because when that movie came out, it was kind of transgressive to have this mainstream a comedy dealing with LGBTQ themes. When you watch Chasing Amy now, I still admire the the effort that's in there and I admire the structure of it, but it's outdated by comparison, especially coming up on 30 years after the fact. <laughs> You know, yeah. um, or or even as something as ancillary as knocked up um, or 40 year old virgin and whatnot, where you understand that, like, there is a certain realm that people like Apatow are working in that is of this moment. Mm-hmm. This is how we reproach the romantic comedy. But in 10 years, is that going to work? It's it's interesting to see that. It feels like Apatow is more than aware of this because his style of directing and his the stories he's telling are changing pretty much with every given movie because he's keeping up with some element of what's contemporary. And so I feel like I feel I feel like it's hard to there is a part of me that feels like it's hard to give the apartment too hard of a time when I understand that the genre itself is eternally stuck in that mold. Now that being said, because it is held up in this regard, it is one of the few comedies to win a Best Picture Oscar. It will always have a voice in the conversation of the greatest comedies of all time, the greatest romantic movies of all time, the greatest dramas of all time, because it encapsulates all those genres. Um, and thus, like The Searchers and like Double Indemnity, it's a, good, it's a good thing to look at the apartment with those things that we have brought up throughout the scope of the film while understanding that you can still enjoy the brilliance that all three of the actors bring to their roles as very flawed and at times terrible people, or in the case of Frank Kubelik, saintly and the definition Mm. of a character that you can lay into. Um, Again, you bring it up and you bring up the problems with those characters, especially Bud. But I think ultimately the, the, the thing that I take away from the apartment is that like Wilder saw an opportunity instead of going down the same roads that he had done before with films like Some Like It Hot and did ask himself, can I step, can I take a step further into the, into the, into the world we're going to be going into within the next 10 years anyway? Um, I think Wilder had enough foresight to understand that the movies weren't going to be following under the same tropes period. And here's a story that I've wanted to tell for years about what happens to the guy who facilitates the affair. And let's see what I can push in the realm of cinema, cinematic language and the way cinema portrays complicated characters on screen. And if that's the case, I think the apartment is a triumph that you should watch from that particular basis with the context that we have discussed. Um, Yeah. But anyway, thank you, Adam, for coming back to the Ballyhoo to talk about Billy Wilder in the apartment. I I I, th- I think we need to ge- get you back to Noir Country next time. How about some Sunset Boulevard next time? <laughs> Are we keeping this a Billy Wilderathon? Well, we can if you'd like. I'd love to keep it a Billy Wilderathon. I like talking mm. Wilder with you. Or you take and you know what? You take a pick. I've been giving you a bunch of titles. You pick. <laughs> I just may. I might have to come up a few years 
from 1960. Ooh, but, I know. I know. I, I And I know of a couple of titles that are on that initial list that you gave me. I know one. Well, it might throw you, might throw you a curveball. Ooh. Ooh. I'm tempted to know what it is. We'll see. We'll talk off mic. Or or you'll just tell me at random. One of the two. I'll just say, grab your headphones. Let's do this. Here we go. No prep. Yep. No prep. <laughs> Today we're talking about a Godard movie that Zach has no access to see. <laughs> I'm Adam. I'm the new host of Yesteryear Value <laughs> Review. <laughs> um, cool. And do you have okay. anything that you would like to plug before... <laughs> <laughs> now you know get out there go go you know what here's what i'm gonna plug there's a couple of companies out there called amc regal cinema um alamo draft house uh shea artiste uh your whatever insert local theater of your local town mm-hmm. go to them yep well first only go to them if you've been vaccinated because here, science matters on this podcast. Yep. So if you're not all about science, you can get fucked. Um, so science matters, number one. And here, living in L.A., the infection rate has gone down extremely well due to vaccines. Hashtag science. Um, <laughs> so anyway, long story. Get vaccinated. Then once you're vaccinated... Go to the movies. Yep. There are still a lot of great movies coming out. What do you think I'm going to be doing soon? I'm going to go see movies like Quiet Place 2, Conjuring 2, um, Fast 9. I mean, granted, I'm ripping off a lot of these big-name movies, but it's also, hey, summer blockbuster season. So Fast 9. Black Widow. And then later on, Black Widow. And then later on, going to go see House of Gucci. Um, what else? Oh, come November, buckle up. We're going to kick the tires and light the fires. And we're going to go see fucking Top Gun 2. Top Gun 2. And in November, we also have the uh, what, what I'm assuming is going to be the final Craig Bond movie. So Yeah, that's that's whatever. Yeah. It's that. Bond has been made inconsequential, but once Amazon, once Almighty Amazon buys MGM, <laughs> um, thank you for bringing alliteration to the to the conversation. It only took close to four hours. Um, exactly, but anyway, go to the movies, yep. people. Get out. Go to the movies. Hang out, and it's also just be like, hey. It's a way to just be by yourself. If you need to just get away, go to the movies. Yep. That's what you have to do. And I, I, I'll tack on an addendum to that. If your theaters still have guidelines, fucking follow them. Make sure you're following the theater's rules because that's how the theater stays open first and foremost in that particular regard. And yes, please go to the theaters. They need your support. They won't just be showing new movies. A lot of these theaters will be showing flashback screenings of plenty of films to offer whether they are from 30 years ago all the way down to 90 years ago like shoot you if you miss citizen kane's rescreenings within the last couple of weeks you're gonna have your chance within june or august or something like that to rewatch it courtesy of tcm you haven't seen yeah citizen? we don't care about that because oh i do they I... they're no longer they're no longer number one on rotten tomatoes they've been taken over by the all hit all 
mighty Paddington Bear. I understand that, but it's still 100% in my heart, and I will promote that movie because, hey, guess what, guys? You lived it for four years. You should remind yourselves that the powerful are fucking scary. Um, now, um, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find more episodes of the show on our feed and find out more about us on Twitter and Instagram um, at the bumpers on the back show. And you can write us now at ballyhoo_review_pod at gmail.com. And then also, if you want to listen back to more of Adam's conversations, I, I do encourage you to go back to the searchers episodes and the double indemnity episodes. So you can understand that kind of the course that our conversations have taken in regards to discussing these more problematic films of the past. And in the case of the apartment, talking about a very complicated issue um, and one that I don't think everybody was expecting us to take today, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad we had the talk because it's difficult to talk about Bud Baxter. Um, but until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>